I could not believe what I was seeing. I could have filled the back of his head with 556, which is an absolute joke. Well, it's not an ape, because if the Sasquatch was an ape, we would already have one. What are these elusive hominids that stalk the wilderness? Your host, two-time witness and field researcher for more than 40 years, William Jevning. Welcome to the mystery. Welcome to Creek Devil. Hello everyone, welcome to another edition of Creek Devil. We are very pleased to have another person from Australia on the show this week. Uh, we're sort of uh, uh, doing a string of interviews with folks there. Barry, how are you today? I'm really good, Will. How are you? I'm doing good. Very productive day today. Uh, Tom is with us. Tom, would you like to uh, kick things off here? Absolutely. Barry, it's it's a it's a real honor and a pleasure to have you on the show. I've watched your videos; um, <clears throat> they're very intriguing, and you guys definitely got you call them the Yowie. We call it Bigfoot, but it's the same thing. It's it's pretty pretty self-explanatory. Um, before we get started, um, you mentioned in your emails to me that it's is it Baz? Do you prefer to be called yeah. Barry? Barry oh, Baz, yeah. Pretty easy going here in Australia, you know, just Baz. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, good. All right. Um, so, real briefly, we were talking to you just a moment ago before before the recording, yeah. and you've had some encounters. Could you uh, fill us in a little bit? Tell tell us in detail about each one of those. Okay, so if I can just start with saying your last show, you had uh, Anne and Daryl on the show from Australia as well. And I am certain that when they listen, they're going to be able to relate to what a lot of us, a lot of what I say. And they're just and stellar they, people. They did an amazing job uh, talking about Australia, giving you some introduction to uh, our culture here, the Aboriginal people. Uh, and the where they had their encounter, I was living at Coffs Harbour for quite a few years, so just 30 minutes north of where they had their encounter. I travelled that road every day as a truck driver uh, for years, so I know exactly where that encounter happened. I was very, very shocked that it was only some two years ago. Um, so if I can give a little bit of background, which is going to help, I guess, provide... Uh, It'll make sense when I get a little bit further into into my encounters. But as a background for me, I'd started driving trucks some 25 years ago. Uh, I didn't go interstate until 2002. Uh, and I'd had a love for photography, astronomy, things like that. So going interstate for me, traveling from Sydney to Melbourne, doing long trips, Sydney to Brisbane. I'd started off doing Sydney, Melbourne up and back for a while, then Sydney, Brisbane. And then one time I got sent to um, Adelaide. So that's quite a long before you go south. Out of Sydney a little bit, turn to the right, head inland. Um, and to me, it was just an amazing experience. I hadn't much been out of Sydney up until this point. So 
for me to, to pull up anywhere in the dark by myself on the side of the road, never had uh, a fear of anything. You know, I'd get out and just be amazed at how dark it was, uh, how beautiful things were, the stars, million stars, wishing I had a camera to be able to sit there and take photos of the stars. And uh, But no matter where I'd travelled, uh, and including from then on, I started going from Brisbane, Adelaide, Brisbane, Melbourne, and return. And you get out into more the middle of Australia. Uh, I liked to travel by myself because I'd had a back injury, and sometimes I felt like driving just for an hour or two, stopping for 15 minutes to stretch my legs, continue on. Never, ever felt uh, a fear anywhere. And it was mainly the first time that I'd started being out places where you encounter a lot of kangaroos and one of the things that had happened to me is that after some of these encounters I started to really study the, the behavior of a kangaroo because as anybody from Australia would know when you're driving you'll see a kangaroo on the side of the road and and sometimes they will just stand there and watch you go by and other times they will take off and jump directly in front of you um, but even when I'd pulled over on the side of the road and I had seen a kangaroo not far from me, they might have just thought, oh, yeah, I feel a bit threatened, and they might hop off just a little bit, not too big a speed, get 50, 100 metres from you, stop and look you, look at you, see what you're doing if, you, if they feel threatened. Um, so anyway... I had gone through a place we call the Pilliga, which is very well recognised in Australia. There's been a lot of encounters there of yowies uh, by truck drivers. A lot of truck drivers uh, had experiences or heard stories. They, they, were, they were way too scared to even ever stop there on the way through. Um, so when you're travelling from, say, inland from, from Adelaide going to Brisbane, instead of going travelling along the coast, you will go through the outback. Uh, and this place, the Pilliga, had a weird feeling about it. It's uh, from, from Coonabarabran to Narrabron is the Pilliga, and it's about an hour and 20 minutes driving to get from that point. Um, it wasn't until 2007 that I'd left the company that I was working for. Uh, I was with the partner that I had then met a couple of years previous, and I started with a new company which... Uh, from I, I would deliver to a supermarket uh, out of Coonabarabran on the edge of the Pilliga. And to get there, you would come out of Sydney, you, you would go up in the end a little bit to a place called Gunnadar, and you would turn left at Gunnadar and head across in a line across to Coonabarabran. So about an hour, five, hour, ten-minute drive. And about halfway into that journey, or about 30 minutes into that journey, you start to then get out of farming land into some pretty rocky, uh, hilly terrain. The road wasn't that good. Uh, quite narrow in places. The edge of the road dropped off, had that your wits about you when you were driving along there. So you wouldn't do 100 kilometres an hour. You'd do maybe 80 k's across there. And there was one or two occasions where I had the window down having a cigarette. You're driving along and you couldn't get to the supermarket until 6am. There was like a curfew in the morning to deliver there. But 
I would be going along there about four thirty, five o'clock in the morning. And I would have kangaroos that would absolutely just come charging out of the bush like they'll be chased by something. And to step back a little bit, when I've hit a kangaroo in my travels, anywhere else that I'd ever travelled through Australia, uh, you could go past it two days later or a week later, the kangaroo would still be there on the side of the road. The crows might be pecking away at it sort of thing, but it'd be decomposing on the side of the road. Uh, even the last week I'd noticed um, on my travels to, to and from work, there's a kangaroo about oh, 20 minutes from here that's been hit that I'd noticed a week ago and up until yesterday it was still there on the side of the road. And as much as I never like hitting animals or anything like that, and they can go under the truck and do a bit of damage, rip airlines off, things like that, in this particular place, from Gunnedah to Kunabarabin, travelling along there, I would hit kangaroos. And I would see them in the mirror. I've hit them with the bull bar. They've bounced off. And I would see where they'd landed on the side of the road. And when you travel a stretch of road every day for your job, you get to know that road intimately. You get to know every little bump in the road, every hill, every little bit of it. So I would go in and I would deliver to the store and it would be some two hours later I'd be coming back and I knew the exact spot I hit the kangaroo and it'd be gone. It wouldn't be there. And I'd be thinking to myself, where did it go? I know I hit it. I've seen it bounce off the truck. I've seen it land on the side of the road. I, I ran over the top of it. It went under the truck. It was in the middle of the road. I knew exactly where it was. I'd come back a couple of hours later to be gone. And this happened so many times until so much later on down the track when I had internet eventually that I had then started doing some research and come across uh, one encounter the two guys had out in that pillar where they came across what they described as a very mass black creature in the middle of the road hunched over and as they got closer and were flicking the lights up the creature stood up and picked up this kangaroo in its arms and walked off into the side of the road so when you have these encounters where in this same area you've hit kangaroos and come back to where later and they're gone you then hear that encounter some years later and you have to think to yourself, what else could it be? What was taking these kangaroos, you know? So so that, that was one part of it. Uh, Annie had made a remark about her, she had talked to her son-in-law, who was a truck driver, about the times that he'd been in the bush. And he ended up admitting to her that there were times where he felt like he was being watched and actually ran to the truck because he felt so scared. Well, when I heard Anne say that, uh, that brought back to me the, the one time that I was out there in the pillager 
and I I was I wasn't going to be able to make the roadhouse, even though it wasn't far from me, five ten minutes up the road. I I uh, really needed to use the bathroom, so I pulled up on the side of the road, and I got out of the truck and walked around the passenger side of the truck, and instantly felt like I was being watched. And with that, this overwhelming fear came over me that I was being chased by something. And I looked around and there was nothing there that I could see. I ran out of fear. I ran around to get in the truck. And I was running that fast, climbing the stairs of the truck that I I smashed my knees on the step. It was like I was mid-air running with my feet trying to get up the steps that quickly. I was so terrified of something and grazed on my knees, was in a heap of pain, and smashed my knees on the steps of this truck, got in this thing and took off. And so I was terrified that I would never, ever stop there again. And again, some years later, when I got internet, I then started hearing encounters and listening to your guys show, uh, other reports, people say about having this fear of being watched uh, and that's how it was for me it's just something terrified me yet any other part of australia i had pulled over by myself in the middle of the night in pitch black darkness and we would stand there and just admire the stars and and it was wonderful out there that encounter and plenty of other truck drivers will will say We'll never, ever, ever stop in that Pelican area, you know? So the actual, what I call the sighting that I had was in the two years that I drove from Gunnedah across to Coonabarabin on the other edge of that Pelican, where, as I had said, would hear kangaroos and come back a couple of hours later on my return trip to find they're not there, they're gone, something's taken them. Um, climbing a bit of a steep hill, I'd hit it at the bottom at about 80, climbing up there, going back through a couple of gears, roads a bit rough, and I was doing about 40 kilometres an hour when I, when I came up to the crest to sort of level out. Had the window down, having a cigarette, and as I had happened to me one time before, I'd had this smell, this horrid putrid smell that I couldn't describe, that it's wafted into the track. And I'd reach for the air freshener and a little bit past that, that smell would be gone. And I said, God, oh, what was that? I don't see any dead animals laying on the side of the road here. Um, but... For whatever reason, something got me attention, and I've looked out the right-hand window, and about I measure it to be about 40, uh, 50 feet from the road. There was a fire trail on the other side of the fence line that, that, that paralleled the road, and it was a bit bit of a clearing before you got deep into the to the woods. And uh, I seen two eyes that were. Like a, I, I sort of liken it to a tomato that's that's not quite ripened, though more of an orangey, not quite red. 
these two round eyes. And when I thought about it, it, it was a three-quarter moon. It was a clear night. It was about quarter past five in the morning. I was running a little bit behind. I used to get there a bit earlier than that. Not quite daylight. There was enough of a kind of a, a shadow to see an outline that, that looked like, it uh, kind of looked like a figure. To me, I thought there was this massive eight-foot-tall tree stump, very wide tree stump, that had these two orangey kind of eyes. Looking at the outline of it, I'm, I must have been looked at it for five or six seconds. Uh, and I took into account so many different things of what I saw. I, I took into account that I had the high beam lights on the truck, that the fact that I've, I'm looking at a lot of light in front of me and I'm looking into the darkness to my right, and my eyes might have taken a second to focus, readjust to what I'm looking at. Um, and I, I, I guess five, six seconds that I looked at it for, and I, and I took into account that from where I would have been sitting in the truck, my island would have been about nine foot up. I know the road to the side stepped up about a foot. So I, I put these eyes at about somewhere around eight feet. And but like I say, it it it, it kind of appeared to be a, an outline of a figure almost um, for the four or five seconds that I might have looked at it. Um, and, and it kind of threw me, like, what am I looking at? What am I seeing? And I, I got into the store. I, I came back there, through there, probably two hours later. Uh, the store, from that point, where I'd have these encounters, would have been another 25, 30 minutes away. Uh, had to wait for the bread truck, milk truck to unload first before me. And then they'd unload me, grab a coffee, head back through there, and it'd be daylight. So I had picked that spot. And in picking that spot when I came back, there was no eight-foot-tall tree stump that, that I could see there in that spot. I spent every day for about 10 months to a year after that point just looking at that exact spot and never could could see anywhere where I could see what I believed was a massive tree stump with red eyes or ready orangey eyes. So that, to me, uh, and, and imagine, too, that, you know, as a kid, I think I'd heard about the abominable snowman, as they called it, and as a kid, you think it's just some mythical monster. Uh, I had never had internet at that point to to understand what a Yowie or a Bigfoot was. Uh, my whole life was driving trucks. I would, I would be gone all week. I'd have one day at home on the weekend. Uh, and never had time to really get on the internet, and if I did have it. So from from that point, uh, as I say, you know, like just going through this area, it, 
as things happen, and kangaroos that jump out on the road, they were going at such a speed like they were being chased. Um, never seen them react like that. Run them over, come back a couple of hours later in daylight. Knew where I'd hit them. I could even see the blood splatter on the road that they were gone. Uh, yeah. And then uh, some 12 months later, uh, uh, I, I then uh, was travelling with a, a guy that I didn't travel with much from that company. And instead of going to Coonabarabran, we're going to Narrabri and up into Moree. Um, and, and, and the pillar that I talk of from Coonabarabran across to Narrabri, and then you could go south from Narrabri to Gunnedah, and Gunnedah turn right, going a line across to Coonabarabran. The, the, the pillar scrub is almost a big triangle. So I was up near, I was traveling with this guy. And he was a big guy. He's like six foot five. Nobody had ever pick on him. He was he was a well-built, well-built bloke. And for whatever reason, I picked up the radio and I said to him, uh, I got to a point where I'd had that encounter where I felt something was watching me, chasing me. I had that fear to smashing my knees on the steps, running up to get in the truck, I was that scared. And for whatever reason, I never talked about these things, but I just picked up the radio and I said, to him, have you ever stopped here? And he said, no way. Oh, okay. If I ask you why, he says, oh, yeah, for I don't want to say too much. I said, okay. So about an hour and a half later, we, we got to where we were going and we stopped and we were talking and, I said to him, he said, what made you ask about, you know, back then in Narrabri? And I, I said, oh, so this had a weird encounter there one night. And he said, what? And uh, for whatever reason, I felt comfortable enough to open up and, and, and tell him what had happened. And he said, oh, he had a very similar thing happen to him there. Now, this was a guy that was, like I say, he didn't seem like he'd be scared or anything, you know. And... A similar story. He didn't want to get too much into detail, but he said he had pulled up there and had and just had a an overwhelming fear come over him that yeah made him get in the truck and go. And as I understand from listening to other truck drivers' encounters, that uh, they've had the very similar things happen to them. So much so that when you when you headed that main route from Narrabri to Coonabarabran. Um, uh, that main route when you come into Coonabarabran heading south on the left there was an old uh, truck stop it's no longer there and I uh, and I, I I had been past it it just never stopped there and I'm so annoyed that I never actually stopped there because having finding out now there had been so many encounters out across that pillager with truck drivers that in the truck driver's restaurant area, on the wall, they had photos of trucks that had actually been stopped there to have a rest and had woken up to something violently shaking the truck. And they had come out of the sleeper cab into the cab to see 
some massive bipedal creature run off when they turned the lights on the truck. And out of fear, just started the truck up and, and, and went to this uh, truck stop. And the service station attendants there would, would see something was wrong. They, they were white as a ghost, eyes like saucers. And, mate, what's going on? And you know, truck drivers would report certain things and they'd go out and have a look at the truck to actually find uh, a lot of marks on the side of the truck, like damage on the side of the truck. And um, apparently they had taken photos of this. There was uh, there was a lot of truck drivers that actually sketched what they had seen. And these were all over a big whiteboard inside the, the truck driver's restaurant. It was a well-known thing back then. Only at the time, I knew nothing of it, except for my encounters out there. And, um, yeah, so just after I'd had that sighting was September and, uh, of 2007 when I, I had seen what I described as a, a figure that looked like a massive big tree stump that I could never find again. Uh, it was my birthday the following month in October. And my partner, she bought me a laptop computer for my birthday. And I was pretty amazed, wow. So, of course, I, I like I said to you, I'd, I'd only be home one day of the week. I'd be on the road the rest of the time. Um, I, I never thought to go on there looking for anything like that until on the news, I was sitting at home one day, and there was two ladies that were going fruit picking on, a, on her brother's property, I remember, up in Taree, uh, the eastern side of Taree, a place called Wingham. And as they were heading up this range, up into the mountains there, towing a caravan, apparently they would they would travel up each year and with their caravan, these two ladies, and go fruit picking on their brother's property for a couple of days. And, and they encountered what they said was the Yowie. Uh, a large eight foot, nine foot tall creature standing on the road when they came around the bend that ran across the road and down the embankment. And they, of course, went to try and figure out what they had seen. I had obviously gotten, well, I can only guess they got them on the computer, tried to investigate what they'd seen and come across a guy up in the Blue Mountains of Sydney in Katoomba by the name of Rex Gilroy, who is uh, uh, known to be, uh, you know, somebody who's researched Yowie and that for, for a long time. And it wasn't the ladies on the news that I remember. It was actually Rex. Um, they'd made, obviously, got me in contact with him, made the call to him. He got in his car the very next day and went straight up there and had actually found footprints on the side of the road, and they put it on the news. And I sat there absolutely gobsmacked. Then that, for me, I then went to look at this guy's website and started to look at photos of Yowie and footprints and 
then I came across a website, a pretty well-respected website that uh, Dean Harrison runs at Antwerp about um, called AYR, Australian Yarry Research. And uh, in talking, uh, you know, looking at the at the uh, at the websites, I then counted reports out the Pilliga. And there's if you go on there, there's actually seven reports in total that, that people have made about the Pilliga. I'm sure there's many more that people just don't want to talk about. And from there, that just uh, sort of sat me back in my chair and I thought, wow, you know, these these things that I had encountered out there could only be what everybody else is talking about. That's the only explanation. I, I racked my brain for years trying to understand what I had seen or what I had experienced out there. So, yeah. You know, Barry... <clears throat> Everything you know, I'm listening with, I'm absolutely intently interested in listening to what you're saying because virtually everything that you've talked about so far is part of a repeating pattern that we get here over and over again you know, on the state. Yeah, it is. Yeah. As I'm finding out more research, I do, yes. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, and I'm going to go back a moment here. You talk about the kangaroos, they get hit and then they're gone. They're taken off the side of the road. You know, they're something got them. Yeah. And they and the kangaroos, we're not talking about little guys. We're how how what do you think? How much do they weigh? Oh, uh, look, I I'm not real good with weights, but geez, like uh, the majority of them are around the five foot mark when they stand up. Okay. Yeah, you get me out back. I, I've seen I've seen kangaroos that are huge, like you know, probably uh, second foot tall. You know, I've I've seen some massive kangaroos. We we have what they call an eastern grey. We have uh, you get out on the like say the Leichhardt Highway heading to North Queensland at the back there. I've seen some some ones that are almost a really dark grey, blacky kind of colour. And they're massive. Some of the big reds and that. You think? It, do you think maybe a hundred pounds would be yeah. out of out of the ordinary, or is that pretty oh, good? Yeah, uh, yeah, probably. Yeah, easy, easy, easy. Okay. And, uh, as Annie had talked about, you know, these these things, uh, you don't want to you don't want to mix with these things because <laughs> right? they, they they sit back on their tail. And those back legs, they use, they sit on their tail and, and however they do it, they balance themselves on that tail and and kick out with their with their with their back legs. And they are so powerful. You know, they'll they will grab something with their front paws and just kick out and the claws are so sharp on these things. And as Danny had talked about the story of what happened to that guy up in Queensland. Um well, that's, yeah. so, so what I, so, and you don't have mountain lions in, uh, in well, Australia, is, is that a, correct? No. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so, so, so the mountain lion didn't drag it off. Here's where I'm going with all this. Um, Will and I know a guy, his name's Lee, and he used to actually live in the same state that I live in, Oregon. And very similar story to your kangaroo stories. Uh, he was driving down. Uh, a rural highway 
I think it was in the evening, and the guy in front of him actually hit an elk. And rather than stopping and shooting it to put it out of its misery, the guy just kept going. And, And the guy that we know, Lee, he kept going, and he was like, you know, wait a second. I'm going to turn around and that's just not right to leave that thing there. So he turned around and he goes back and he said, altogether, must have been 15 minutes that he'd gone up the road, turned around, came back to where the elk was. And the elk weighs, you know, they, they weigh 800 pounds, maybe more, you know, some big ones. We'll say 800 pounds. He comes back, it's gone, nowhere to be seen. And he starts to walk into the bush to track it. There's no drag marks or anything. Something had picked it up, carried it off. And then he thought, I really thought better of it. Maybe I really shouldn't follow this. But where I'm going with this is obviously it's a repeating pattern. You know, we got that here in the States. You've got that there with the kangaroos in Australia. But the other, the other repeating pattern, well, one of them, not there's because there's several of them that I picked up on, was the the eyes. We had a guy that we interviewed a while back. Actually, we've had multiple, two or three guys that we've interviewed. Same situation, huge eyes, uh, glowing orange, kind of the color of like a candle color, or like I, I like your description, like a not quite ripe tomato and just looking at you so uh it's it's fascinating to hear this from somebody who is you know we're separated by thousands of nautical miles of ocean yeah and we got the same same situation going on i want to hear more but i before we do that can i ask you a question yes um in australia do you are there reports of people just vanishing? No, you know whether they had a backpack or whatever, they're just gone, and no sign of any of their equipment can be found. Yes, uh, I, I we have a lot of missing person reports here in Australia. Uh, that that uh, I think if uh, what's the website Crime Stoppers? Uh, I, I know occasionally I've seen things pop up. Uh, there's been TV shows here in Australia about uh, missing persons. They did a series about um, Ivan Malat who passed away, who was a serial backpacker murderer here in Australia quite a few years ago and um, they had run a series on it and and I think they had mentioned how many, you know, hundreds of people uh, that are still missing um, and could he have been responsible for all of them and not just the 10 or 15 that that they were able to convict him of. And... um, yeah, there's, there's a lot of missing persons reports. Okay, so that's so that's an, one repeating pattern, and then another one 
is the experience that you had of <clears throat> it's almost like a premonition of doom or terror. Once. Yeah, twice. Twice that happened, and the second time was with my mum. Tell tell us about that second time. I that'd be interesting. Uh, so the, the first time that it happened to me, as I had said to you, uh, yeah, I was by myself. I, I had pulled up. Uh, I'll explain that part of it, but uh, that overwhelming. It's just a feeling of being watched. There wasn't any sound. There was just a feeling of being watched, and there was quite a clearing before the bush line started. So I had looked around and. When I walked around to the passenger side of the truck and didn't see anything there, the hair stood up on the back of the neck and I got this feeling like something's coming after me almost, like I started running. And the closer I got to the truck, the faster I run. Well, as it turned out in 2009, the company that I was working for where I was heading out to Coonabarabran and having these these things happen all the time out there in that trilogy. Um I had finished up with that company and um, I had finished up with them because I actually was at a store uh, in Glen Innes and I was on unloading and had an accident on the dock unloading and um, broke my foot had to get taken to hospital and anyway I ended up at that point I finished up with that company I was on workers comp for, for about two months and uh, but in that time it also split up with my partner so my mum and dad were living up in uh, Crossale I was living at Newcastle at the time with her we split up unfortunately and I, I moved up to Coffs Harbour and mum and dad had a granny flat there when I was living in and my foot had gotten a bit better and I said to mum, look, I need to do a trip across to Tamworth to the, the company to go and get the things of mine that was still in the truck. So I had hired a car. I didn't have my own car at the time. I hired a car and mum said, look, I'll come with you because on the way across, um, you can drop me off at Armadale to see my granddad, mum's dad. You can go down to Tamworth, get the stuff out of your truck and pick me up on the way back and I'll get to see I'll get to see dad. I said, yeah, yeah, that'd be great. So mum comes with me. Now, we, uh, I dropped her off at my granddad's house at Armadale. It's about an hour and 20 minutes or something drive down into Tamworth. I get down there, talk a couple of guys for a while. Got everything of mine, my personal belongings out of the truck. I used to drive back up to Armadale, picks mum up. It's late afternoon, has a cup of tea with granddads, and we heads off. And you come through an area called Wollamombi when you go from Armadale to head back to the coast. Uh, you would go through this area called Wollamombi. Uh, you get to a place called Ebor, turn right across to Dorigo, down the Dorigo Mountain, brings you out on the coast. Down near the exact spot where Anne had had their experience, Anne and Daryl, is where it brings you out down near Yuranga there, heading north up across harbour, up the highway. So we come to this area, being it's a hiker. Mum was a smoker, I was a smoker. Mum, mum said, oh, I want to have a cigarette. I said, yeah, well, I'll pull over. It was dark, it was about 8 o'clock at night. 
uh, seven o'clock at night, right? And there was a bit of a runoff area on the side of the road where uh, a bit of a quite large gravelly area. So we, we, we pulled up on the side of the road, got out, million stars, said to mum, we are beautiful, this is, we lit a cigarette. I walked around to the passenger side of the car and instantly I get the feeling of the hair in the back of my neck standing up like I'm being watched, not realising that at the exact same time mum's having this exact same feeling. And I've looked at mum and she's just staring into the bush. And I said, are you okay? And she goes, no, I, I don't feel right. And I said, are you okay? And she, next thing you know, we heard a twig snap, like a stick, bang, being snapped. And that was it. It was like the fear overcome the both of us. We dropped those cigarettes after two, having two puffs on them. We dropped them on the ground and we got in that car, spun the wheels as we took off out of there. And mum was shaking. Mum was literally shaking. And uh, before I could even ask her what she had felt, she said that when she got out of the car, she had a she just had a fear of being watched, and her hair on the back of her neck stood up, and and the, the same feeling that I had had. It, it just brought back all the memories of that same first experience in the trunk. And mum was going through with me on the side of the road and uh, we, we talked about it. We It wasn't until we got to Dorigo, uh, a fair way up the road, we got into the town of Dorigo and we stopped and got out of the car to actually have a cigarette. And mum couldn't stop talking about it. And she said, what was that? And I said, look, I don't know. I said, I have my feelings of, because as I said, uh, Two years ago, my partner bought me a laptop and I had started to uh, to look at a couple of things on there after I heard Rex Gilroy talk about these these creatures. Um, and I, I again, that encounter, I thought to myself, I've watched a kangaroo that, if a kangaroo, you don't know they're there, they're just going to stand there and look at you. And if they go to hop off, they're going to hop off. And you're going to hear them, like, they don't just make one movement and stop. They'll, you'll hear them hopping off through the bush. And I, and I, and I rack my brain trying to think, what's, what can snap a stick in half, you know? So, again, as I was to discover later on down the track, uh, and when I say later on down the track, it was only actually six months ago, I went back to the AYR website and on YouTube is their, uh, is their, their witness reports um, on Yowie Hunters on uh, AYR on YouTube. So I'm listening to some reports. One lady's report was, was uh, uh, Probably, I would think, only 25 minutes from where I had the encounters out there near Coonabarabra that I listened to. Her account was amazing. Um, and then virtually across the road from where me and mum were that day, uh, Gary had a report that from 1996, he was in virtually across the road from where we were. 
in a creek. He was with the mate fishing in daytime and had a full sighting of the alley. Um, so, yeah, that, like I say, that, uh, that when that stick snapped in half, that, uh, that we dropped our cigarette and we looked in our car and, and it was that same overwhelming fear that I'd had that time that I pulled up in the truck. And, and mum still talks about it today. Yeah, that's, um, that's it's very common. You know, a lot of people get that. It's, uh, I just kind of refer to it as a premonition of danger, strong premonition of danger. Um, I want to make a quick comment, and maybe Will can comment on on it as well. I don't know the source of it, but somebody had told Will that smoking actually really kind of, for lack of a better word, it kind of freaks the creatures out. It wigs them out. And I was just commenting uh, when you're talking about that. I said, well, you know, those cigarettes might have uh, really helped you guys out that day. That was actually one of my okay. one of my sources that said that uh, it kind of kind of freaks them out when they see smoke coming out of a person's nose and mouth. Wow, well, well, I had no idea. Okay, so a little 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 tip for all you smokers out there. <laughs> yeah. Okay, yeah, but but I, I well, uh, the the thing that got me was. You then play in your mind like I had with the kangaroos. It played on my mind. What can snap a stick? Like it was a clean snap of a large stick. What can snap a stick like that? What has hands to do that? It just didn't make sense. There was nobody we could see there. Why would a person be be hiding in the bush? You know? Uh, it just made no sense. You know, it's uh, interesting when you talk about that that one snap. I, I'm I find it interesting because I, I hadn't thought about it in terms of because um, you don't have, I guess you know you, you have uh, kangaroos are kind of the biggest animals you have. I'm assuming, yeah. other than livestock, and uh, so here in the where I live in the Pacific Northwest, it's it's common to be out in the woods and, you know, you might hear something snapping, but, it you know, it could be anything. It could be a bear, it could be a mountain lion, it could be a, more, more often than not, it's just going to be a deer, uh, <clears throat> elk or something like that. But it's it was really interesting to hear you say, you heard a twig snap and what you're saying is that is very much out of the ordinary. Yeah. I, I that that went through my mind for ages. I, I tried to explain it to Mum, and I remember we came home. I think it might have been the next day or a day after. I I got onto that AYR website. I couldn't remember what the website was. I think, and I I I got onto it, and she sat there with me, and and I actually showed her witness reports from out around the Pilliga, and talked to her about. Uh, the encounters that I'd had out there, I'd, I'd never talked to anybody about this. Um, my partner at the time was home with me the day that these two ladies were on the TV about their report up there in Taree, and she saw it, and I and I didn't go into detail with her. Uh, this was my partner that I loved at the time, but I I just still 
for whatever reason, didn't want to go into detail about things that I had seen out there because you don't want to, like a lot of people, you don't want people thinking that you're crazy. That are just things that I, I could never explain. And, um, and, and thankfully now I feel like I'm getting some closure because in all credit to you guys for what you do, being able to listen to everybody else's accounts just rings so true with similarities in my accounts, you know, and then in some way helps to to understand because you rack your brain for years trying to work out what you've seen, what you heard or felt or and you can't explain it. And then you hear that other people have had very similar, like with Anne talking about her, her son-in-law, the fear he had a few times out in the bush and ran to his truck, even though he didn't really want to admit it or go too much into detail. When I heard Anne talk about that last week, I went, my God, that's exactly what happened to me and, and especially with mum that time in the car, you know. So, I think that's you know it really is. It's it's a it's good to have a, a clearinghouse. That's really the big uh, problem in this subject overall. Is you know there's been a lot of isolated or people feel isolated, and and it's been my experience now for a long long time that you know when people talk about this, it really kind of it helps them get perspective on it. And uh, yeah, I, I know I went through that myself. Yeah, that's that's what I'm doing now, and it's um, I, I can I can tell you that for the very first time I got a best mate uh, who's a truck driver, and now we 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 came up with this last night talking on the phone. I I've never talked to anybody, and we were talking about podcasts, and I just threw it out there that I happened to be listening to a good pop podcast about the Black Panther about uh, and about the Owie and Bigfoot and things like that. And he said to me, oh, Baz, I believe they're out there. He said, I could tell you what, I've never stopped in the pillager. And I said, excuse me? And he started to tell me uh, about his fear of never wanting to stop in the pillager when he used to travel through there. And so it was only just last night that I, I then felt comfortable enough, he's, he's one of my best mates, that um, uh, that I could open up about my experiences out there to him and the fact that I was going to be on your show today. Uh, and, you know, couldn't stop thanking him for, for just for believing me, you know, for, for not thinking I was crazy. And, uh, and uh, it's just helping me come to terms with, with what I've dealt with. And, and, and even as I said to him, I... I, I never, out of the friends that I had when I grew up, none of them actually ever went camping. So I've never actually been camping in my life, believe it or not. And uh, the thing is, for me, I, I I love photography. I love nothing more than to be able to hike into waterfalls, to photograph waterfalls and things like that. You know, this changed me, that... Uh, as much as I would give anything to be able to go with a group of friends and I, I think it'd be nothing better than uh, to go camping out in the bush and have a fire and sit around and tell stories and a couple of drinks. Um, I 
these encounters that I had, uh, there's there's no way I could ever go camping. There's no way I could ever go out in the bush. I um, yeah, it, it kind of changed me. Eh? So yeah. Sadly, it's just that uh, I know there's something out there, and um, yeah, sadly, I don't think I'll ever get to go camping because I, you know, seen what I've seen that night, and uh, those, those two encounters uh, of that overwhelming fear, uh, yeah, kind of It ruined. does change things, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. So... <laughs> To be able to come forward last night to a mate that I've been mates with for 10 years, and, uh, yeah, and actually for the first time just open up to him was 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 a really good thing. It's not something I'm going to open up to anybody else about, of course, but uh, he listened to me, he understood. He, I didn't actually realise that many years ago he, he used to travel through there as well, and he uh, had had a couple of his mates uh, telling me some encounters they'd had out there, and... Um, he was he was good enough to, to understand me and and listen and um, coming on your show today has has been a good thing to talk to you guys and just be able to get it out there. Uh, and I've tried I've tried to talk to to one other show here in Australia, uh, but yeah, it's been a good thing. So I really thank you. Oh, absolutely! It's our pleasure, and um, you know I. Um, I know what you're talking about because I first talked to Will. I had an encounter, first one back in 2017, and I was trying to make heads, you know, really trying to, uh, you know, piece it together. And it just, through process of elimination, I, there was just no explanation other than this creature. Yep. And I think it was uh, early part of 2018 when I was got a chance to talk, talk to him and to you know, Brian and one other guy on the show. And um, <clears throat> the part that I really liked and what I my takeaway was no hurdles to get over. I didn't have to mm-hmm. convince them. I didn't, you know, nobody came in and tried to say, well, let me let me tell you what you really experienced. Um, yeah. And and then I come to find out that this one, this first particular, uh, <clears throat> uh, it, it, I suppose you could call it an encounter. It was a... Uh, we're in a wilderness area. It's loud, loud, sharp, piercing whistle just uh, 15 feet from my truck at nighttime. In the middle of winter, yeah. there's nothing out there. Uh, <clears throat> and it's just good to hear, you know, that it was uh, a common occurrence. So, yeah, I, I understand. It's It really is very helpful to get it off your chest and then find that there's other people who've, uh, like that friend of yours, <clears throat> who experienced it. And it sounds like there's one particular area on that trucking route that the truckers know don't stop there. Yeah, a lot of reports out there. It's, it's an amazing thing. And, and look, what I'll do for you and Will is, uh, if you like, um, got your email address here, Tom, what we've been emailing is that I'll, I'll do a screenshot of, of Google Maps of that area uh, and I'll piece together some information from the internet to, to send over, attach in an email for you. Yeah, I really much appreciate it. So that you guys have some, some websites that you can look to uh, here, which will give you a, a ton of information about Yowie's here in Australia. Um, Dean Harrison would, 
He he would be the guy that you really want to talk to because I think it was some twenty something years ago he had his first encounter at night and then thought he was going to die that night. It was a pretty horrendous encounter of being chased through the bush and um, and that started him on his journey. Uh, he's the founder of the AYR here in Australia, the Australian Area Research. It's a good site. I checked and it out. He's had uh, yeah some some amazing encounters with these creatures and his research and they him and his group of guys they they go deep into the bush where a couple of times I think they've been uh, needed to be rescued by a helicopter because they they were struggling to get back here they were they were far deep in the bush off the beaten track um, in their research and um, yeah so well they're gutsy yeah. they're gutsy guys I got to tell you because I they're out they're out there camping with with uh, hammocks and yes. will and i joke about that that's just basically a burrito they just wrap you up and you know <laughs> yeah they uh, you know what's interesting is the they they got enough money to be able to get this uh, amazing thermal camera is it a flare or something there's, there's some type of amazing thermal camera and one of their last outings, uh, they they got some amazing, beautiful footage. Uh, yeah, I saw that. It was it was some guy who was, I guess it was in, his beginner's yeah, luck. It was his first time. And he was just yeah, he was filming and and you you can see when when they talk about it, the the height of the thing, uh, you you can see what it is. You know, it's. Um, it was pretty amazing footage, and uh, yeah, well, so it was it was amazing. And what really what I what I again we're talking about the repeating patterns. They had no clue that these things were there. No clue. The last the last encounter that I had, I had zero clue. I knew they weren't there. I just knew it. And um, I was there with a couple other guys, and uh, I was wrong. They were there. So uh, I found that fascinating that these guys, he just picked it up and hit the right spot at the right time, panning around. And, well, look yeah. at this. We got company. You know what makes me laugh is you get the, the, the people that don't believe and they'll say, well, why hasn't anybody ever taken a photo of these things? Like, well, number one, at any point, and any any you ask any person that's ever had an encounter, did they ever think to pull their phone out of their pocket or their camera out to, to grab a photo <laughs> in that brief couple of seconds? Right. And as a photographer, it's only just been in the last couple of years that we've got some pretty amazing. I've got the new Samsung Ultra S21. The, the camera on that blows me away. Uh, I love using it for photography now. But if even if I had that in my pocket and uh, I happened to be out somewhere, at, at, at any point, go back to any of those experiences, the fear that I felt, there is no way. The camera would be the last thing on my mind. I just want to get the hell out of it. <laughs> right. I ain't going to pull out a camera and start photographs. Will, how about you? You, your first encounter, you ran into these things. <laughs> um, did you feel like, hey, hang on, Mr. Bigfoot, let me get a camera? 
you know, yeah. I, I kind of think I was wasn't even concerned about the, uh, you know, the contents of my underwear, let alone pulling a camera out. No, I wouldn't have. I wouldn't have even had the presence of mind at that moment if I'd had yeah. ten cameras hanging around my neck to lift one up and take a picture. Yeah, and every encounter that I've ever listened to from people, they say that they looked at this thing and and. Although, however brief the encounter might have been, this thing just took off, or it charged, it gave a bluff charge at them, and and they took off. Right. It, <laughs> it's okay for people to say, well, yeah, well, if we're going to photograph of these things, you know, um, well, you I know, I, know. I want to grab those people. I want to take them up. I want to put them right to where there's going to be one in about thirty seconds. Say. Get ready. Get ready. Get your camera out. Yeah. yeah. And they could have their camera in their hand and and have that encounter like this. I guarantee you they don't get a photo. I guarantee you they get the hell out of there. You know? <laughs> uh, yeah. Like I say, it's changed me for if I want to go in the bush, sadly, because I, I would love to go camping, but I just don't feel brave enough to do it, to be honest with you. Right. Uh, right. Camp in the backyard. There you go. <laughs> Well, listen. Yeah, we, live on, we live on five acres here, so it's you know, quite nice here. I'm, I'm happy here, but it's about as far as which you get moved. So, you know. yeah. Fantastic, Baz. I got to tell you, this was an absolute treat for us. It, sure was. it really was. Not only, yeah, the repeating patterns in Australia. Just. Uh, uh, you're a really, really good guy to talk to, and uh, the, as a guest, uh, very interesting. So, thank you. No, thank you so much, guys. I, I truly feel very honored, just like Andy and Daryl were, to, to have been on your show. Uh, and any information that I can give you guys that I've, I've looked into about these things over here, I'm, I'm happy to pass on. So. Keep in touch with us. We'd really appreciate that. Uh, I will for sure. I've got you there on Skype now, Will, so I'll definitely be. Um, yeah, and I've got the email there for you, Tom. And uh, yeah, but but to thank you for what you guys do to, to give us a voice to remain the law, you know. Oh, absolutely. I'm going to shoot you an email um, with a with an invite to uh, join the uh, Will's research group over there. I, I, I would really love that because I there, there's a couple of I've never been a person to sit and read books, but. I've noticed there that you have some books that I would absolutely, uh, I'd love to purchase off your will to, to read some of your books and your research. So, yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. Well, listen, stay in touch. Uh, keep an eye on your inbox and um, hopefully we'll talk again soon. I so look forward to it. Thanks, guys. It's been great. All right. Thank you. Thanks, Baz. Welcome back from the break, everyone. Darcy's joined us for this segment. You've had some recent stuff go on. Uh, yeah. Uh, one thing in the spring and just a couple of days ago. Well, let's kind of go back to the spring and start there. So, you know, I, I think we talked before about that. But, you know, for people listening who haven't heard that, uh, let's go ahead and start at that point. 
Um, I was at work and we had had a thunderstorm the that day. And when we came back to work the next day, uh, me and one of the girls stepped outside because she wanted to tell me something. And there's a picnic table there. And I was sitting there and she was talking to me and I looked down and I said, do you see what I see? And they're always teasing me because, you know, I know Bigfoot exists and and I try to show them the evidence and they all laugh. But, you know, it's in good nature. But when she looked down and saw what I saw, she says, that's a huge footprint. And it was at our um, back door where we work at. I mean, literally on the cement, which I sent you photos, I think. Um, yeah, and I appreciate she, you did. It freaked her out. Yeah, it, it really freaked her out because she says, and I thought, I said, now, are y'all playing a joke with me? And they said, no way, no how. It was a real footprint. It was muddy. Uh, in fact, there's two of them um, side by side. And, and it was right up at the door. So, see, that's what I love, yeah, Darcy, is when you get the the skeptics who, you know, especially the ones that kind of rib you a little bit and tease you, mm-hmm. and then they get some undeniable evidence like that. Um, well, it's, it's great. You know, her mouth just dropped open. She couldn't believe what she was seeing. And there was about a week or two we didn't open up that back door. We used to keep it open during the day. And we wouldn't do it. No, this is the beauty salon you work at, right? Mm-hmm. And and you don't and think Bigfoot right does it? You could do some hair color and some fingernails and. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Actually, there's woods that lead right up to our back door, and um, so I can see how it could get there because there's it's so much wooded area, and it's not far from the Hall River. So that would be a good um, kind of a pathway for these things to travel along. And you think they got concealment? Oh, they've got a lot. Oh, yeah. You know what? I'm curious. There's got to be a reason that they come into that area. I mean, I I get why they come over by your house, because that's... um, Apparently that's an area that they're they're accustomed to. But does anybody leave food or trash or anything like that out? Um, you know, in, in any of the other stores or anything that might be. Yeah, um, there's a trash can on the other store beside us. But I checked; there was no footprints over there. The only footprints were leading up to our door. Really? Yes. That's unnerving. Um, now, this yes. was just a couple days ago, or? No, that was back in April, early May, somewhere around there. Oh, okay, I saw those footprints. Yeah, those big, big wet ones. Um, yes. Now, did you have a recent encounter with these things? <laughs> I was sitting outside last week um, talking on the phone, and I really have let my guard down because during this time of year, usually not much activity. And I was sitting outside on the phone um, talking to one of my friends and 
I, I guess I just wasn't paying attention because I was waiting for another friend to come pick up a portable um, air condition because their air condition had broke. And so I was sitting outside just waiting, and the creature was right there at the side of my house, and I didn't realize it had snuck up on me. Okay, so you could see the creature. It took off. When I, I made some kind of sudden movement, and when I did, it took off. I saw it just by the corner of my eye, and it took off, and you could hear the footfall. And it was running, and it went right into the bamboo. Oh, I wow. jumped up and ran in the hills. And this is one of you seen previously, right? Yes. For folks listening who haven't haven't heard you before, tell us about the three that you've seen, and then tell us which one this was. Um, the first one I saw was a, a huge blonde one, and I won't even 35 feet when it ran by the house. The second one I saw was a black one across the street um, behind a tree watching me. And then the third one I saw was a red one on all fours. I had just was going down the road and looked in my rear view mirror, and there it was. And the one that was by my house was the big blonde one. So... Did you and the color of the one that you just saw? Because I remember one time you talked about the red one, and that was the one out of all the ones you saw, that was the one that really bothered you. Is that correct? Yes, yes, and that still haunts me terribly. But it was the big blonde one that I saw, okay, <clears throat> but it's there, still pretty spooky. Do what. Well, yeah, but even though the blonde one is, that one's still pretty spooky. Uh, let's just say it won't, it, it, I was very unsettled. I dropped the F-bomb while I was on the phone, and I don't cuss. Well, no, that, right? one's, that one's different than the other two, right? Um, yes, the, the blonde one, when I say short hair, I mean really short hair. And it's like a dark blonde. And you can really see the muscle in this thing and all its movements. And like I said, I saw it out of the corner of my eye. And I didn't hear it sneak up. You know, they don't always smell, so I didn't smell anything. But I had made some kind of movement, and it took off. And when I saw it out of the corner of my eye and I heard it, I jumped up and ran in the house. I think that's what I would have done. And, <laughs> I would have gotten the heck out of there. Well, I said a few things on the phone because I was on the phone at the time, but and she was laughing at me. I said, "That's not funny." <clears throat> no. And I'm thinking, you know, I'm not going to have any activity if I do, not till the fall of the year. Didn't happen. Yeah, there must be something else going on in the area that's changed that behavior pattern. Well, I know they're doing a lot of construction around here. And you have to remember that we have an overabundance of deer. There are times that I have five or six deer in my um, yard when I come home from work. Which I'm glad to see because then I'm not afraid to go across the yard. Let me ask you, the when the creatures are around the area, are the deer scarce? 
Yes. And I won't pay attention. Like right now, I can hear the crickets outside. And usually about dusk, you can hear that. Had I been paying attention and not yakking on the phone, I'd have realized there won't a cricket, no noise at the time. Like I said, I let my my, um, guard down and won't pay attention. But it was completely quiet. And I should have known. You've had quite a few things happen around there. Slapping on the house and all sorts of things. Oh, yeah. Coming up to my um, kitchen window. Oh, yeah. Um, Now, like I said, my nephew stayed away for two, three months. Because he's actually, we'd come in and he went to go out and he could smell it. It was that strong. And after that day, he stayed gone for about three months. He's just now came back. Now, he stayed away because of this? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Darcy, did you, last time we talked, you were, I think you had some cameras. Did you ever, or not cameras, but lights. Did you ever get the lights set up around the house so that? I have, I have, I have lights. They're um, motion sensor. So if anything's walking around, they, they pop on. Okay. And are you still getting, do they, that's my question. Do they pop on from time to time? Well, yeah, but then you have to think, you know, did a spider crawl across it or did that set it off? Or Right. But now if they, if they keep going on and off between the two on my side door and my front door, then I know. But usually if they're really walking around the house and they want me to know, they're going to either swat the house or I'm going to either, you know, they're either whistling or I'm going to know. I can, I can hear them. Um, like I said, but if they don't want you to know they're around, you're not going to know. Because I won't even 10 feet from the creature the other day from where I was sitting in the corner of the house. Wow. Yeah, and, and that's true. You know, they're they're very good at, at uh, concealment. Well, that's interesting that they're coming around this time of year when it's not the time of year. Um, I think we'll just kind of do a general discussion or a Q&A. Um, what do you guys think? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm just going to do a roundtable. We'll let you jump in there, Tom. Do you have, I'm sure you've got some uh, questions. Yeah, well, we have one person that wants to know about the the vocalizations that the creatures creatures make do we have and this is actually a very good question they want to know if we have like either a database or a kind of a catalog of known sounds known vocals that the creatures make you know screams roars whistles that sort of thing i don't know that there is one. work of course we're working on one but i don't know that anybody's really cataloged of course, the first thing is, how do you know something is legitimate that's been recorded? Right. Exactly. I know that I've gone on the internet and checking different ones that are supposed to be vocalizations, and it is nothing like I heard. Absolutely nothing like I heard. Right, and, so, and that's you get a lot of that. It's how do you how do you know? Um, um, 
you know, until I talked to you and Will and actually heard the whistling, I never knew they whistled. Yeah, I, I go back to uh, when I first started reading about this stuff in John Green's books many, many years ago. And, and that's what he wrote in there that the, uh, the Northwest natives talked about, and especially with their artwork, uh, ceremonial masks that pretty much, you know, when you see the mask that has the pursed lips, that's the, uh, that's the wild man of the woods whistling. And that's what they always said. Well, I'm going to tell you, they can whistle, and it's loud. Um, as far as their growls and howls, I've yet to hear one like I heard. I heard and, I, of course, I've heard the gibbering, what I call gibberish. To yeah. me, it sounds like gibberish. Yeah, I've heard the same thing, and the same with the growl and whistles. Uh, the whistles are loud. I've heard them up in the Olympic Mountains. Um, you'd almost mistake it for a person whistling. Yes. If, had it not been 2, 30, 3 o'clock in the morning, you know, if it's going to be someone breaking in, they're not going to whistle. Right. <laughs> That's a pretty poor thief if they're going to whistle. <laughs> right. And uh, so, you know, and it, it took me about two nights to figure out, it's the creature whistling walking around my house. And my son actually heard that because he was staying with me one night. And he says, Mom, who's that? I said, it's not a who, it's a what. Go back to bed. <laughs> <laughs> it's a what? Go back to bed. <laughs> Nothing to see here, folks. <laughs> yeah, and that's, that's a guaranteed way to make sure they don't go to sleep. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. Um, but you have to hear it. But as far as finding anything on the Internet, I found nothing. Absolutely nothing. I don't know if it's because when you're recording, it's not a good recording of it. It's not the right type of recorder to to actually get it. That's what I'm thinking. Well, we've had people send us recordings, and, and even you, Tom, have recorded some stuff. Uh, yeah. One of the best vocals, probably the best vocal I've ever heard, uh, it, it would have made excellent recordings because it was close and it was super loud, and I had the recorder in my pocket, but it only vocalized one time. And it, uh. it was a doggone shame because... Uh, it would have been, it would have been the best recording hand hands down. It was only a hundred yards or so away. It was really close and super loud. Well, the one I heard, I wasn't even ten feet from, because it made me vibrate from the inside out. It was that loud. Yeah, and, and that's oh, we hear that a lot. It's it's unreal. Yeah, exactly. Well, we've got a. Um, we got a question from Rachel. Rachel's from Australia. And she says, I'm sorry if this is a repeated question. I'm still catching up on your shows and have not heard it mentioned before. She's got an excellent question. She says, is there evidence that these creatures use fire, such as taking campsites or barbecues after people are camping? Do you think they'd be intelligent to give it a try or to try? She says, if they do, do you think they might develop it as a weapon, such as burning land or someone's home? Well, first of all, thank you, Rachel. We really appreciate our Australian listeners. And, uh, you know, all, all the questions are certainly welcome and, and participation. Um, there were old stories 
there was one in particular, uh, and again, it goes back to John Green's books, where uh, I don't know if the guy was a hunter or fisherman or what he was doing, but um, he was away from his fire, then he came back, and it was pretty much burning embers, and a couple of Sasquatches were actually there, uh, almost like human kids, poking sticks in it and swirling them around, you know, when they light. <clears throat> so apparently they're not afraid of fire, and even, even my own... Uh, situation we had where all of us went out you know when we first started in this as teenagers and uh, uh, we left the camp we had a couple of fires going because it was a, a large group of us and we looked down after you know this was after being having a branch thrown at us and uh, we went charging up into the, the hill to go after whatever through the branch and when we looked back here were two silhouettes uh, of these creatures rummaging through our equipment so you know food and stuff so um i, I don't think they're afraid of fire you know by by at least those accounts what, what do you think darcy I, I was just thinking that you know the few times we've had um my fire pit going and it walked across the yard i don't think it's um afraid of it at all and we had a nice sized fire pit going, and it just walked behind the truck and everything, and just kept going. So, you know, I wonder. I mean, pure conjecture, but it, you know, most animals, and I don't, I don't, I definitely do not categorize these as animals, but animals are creatures of instinct for the most part. But these are creatures of thought, intellect. I, I don't know, Will. What do you think? I think they can, I think they know. They can. They can observe. They can see. Uh, fire is probably not the mystery to them. Well, and as a primate, they're going to be the as a primate, they're going to be highly curious anyway. So, uh, if they see humans near it and doing things with it, it probably they probably figure, okay, let me find out what's what that is. As far as them being able to make it, um, I don't. I don't. Never heard of anything that would support that but uh you know who knows right well there is a video on that i saw a while back of chimps there's a it might have been a bonobo it's a very large chimp that the trainer had um taught it to eat mush marshmallows and then it taught it that marshmallows you know it roasted them over a fire and immediately this thing's like this is a better marshmallow <laughs> and <laughs> Long story short, it actually had, if I recall, it went out and, and could even build its own fire and had matches. You know, once it got the matches, it wasn't, you know, it was pretty clumsy with the matches, but it did try to start the fire so that it could roast its own marshmallows. Yeah, I think starting a fire without a match is a tall order for most things. I'm sure even our yeah. distant ancestors had a tough time figuring that one out, but... Uh, um there isn't any evidence well, that they sure. do it. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I'm, I'm sure they've watched us cook over the, a grill, over the fire at the campsites and stuff. So I'm sure they figured out that we use it to prepare our foods a lot. And if they've been around since the early Native Americans, they know exactly what fire's for. And even before the Native peoples came here, they were here. Accord, yeah. According to Native peoples, and, you know, with forest fires every year, you know, I'm sure they've had a long experience with fire. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and here on so, the West Coast, they're getting plenty of fire. 
and may have found uses for it we just aren't aware of. Right. Or they're not as weary of it as most animals would be yeah. from it. I, I know, you know, it's interesting he'd say that because I, I remember being at the Klamath Reservation one year when I was writing my first book and I, I was invited to come there to talk to the head of the cultural committee, Gerald Skelton, and he uh, told me a story about a native firefighting crew um, that were was spread out. And I, I think they were, I think they were just kind of looking for hot spots and things like that. There was some fire, but one of these creatures come running out of where the fire was, and its hair was smoldering, and it actually fell down amongst the uh, the native folks, and then got up and ran off, and and the handprints were cast, and they were in a in a on display for years there. He said, but uh, it was interesting that it had come out from where the fire was. So, you know, they don't. It was just, it wasn't so much the instinct. I mean, it was it was in where the fire was, so it makes me wonder, what was it doing in there? You know, it was between the fire and the firefighting crews. And uh, and I fought fire, for, fire, fire before, so, you know, you have your lines stretched uh, along those perimeters, and uh, somehow it was in there between the fire and the fire crews, but then uh, apparently got scorched maybe a little too close and had to come running out of there. Or if it was trying to get a young... Yeah, I don't know. That was Matt. You know, I would love to interview, talk to one or more of the uh, fire crew. I mean, you got to think about it. You're you're a firefighting crew. You may not, you may or may not believe in the existence of the creatures, and this thing comes running out and plops down in front of you. Yeah, this was. I mean, hello. What kind of is that? Yeah, this was a Native American firefighting crew. Yeah, it would be interesting to hear what they'd say. I know when I fought fire, um, geez, there were 6,000 of us in the base camp, so it was a lot of equipment, a lot of people, a lot of activity. Um, you know, there there was just wasn't any time to, you know, find out if anyone had ever seen anything around there, but um, there's certainly possibilities that fire crews do see things. I know tracks have been found occasionally. Mm. Oh, you know, there was a situation. I've mentioned this before. Um, I know someone who was a Cal Fire captain, and he was in one of the rear areas in one of the fires here a few years ago, and he was conferring with another uh, captain on, on some matter, and they were near one of the food drops. And there weren't too many of the people around there. Most of them were up on, you know, doing what they were doing. Uh, so there were some of the logistics people back there. And they happened to notice while they were talking, they glanced over and saw one of these creatures sneaking up on the food drop. <laughs> so they're not done. They're coming after the goodies, you know. Well, you got to ask, I wonder if that's what the other one was doing. Was it was it running to the guys and saying, hey, put the fire out of me? Or was it thinking there was food? <laughs> you know, it reminded me of another account, too. We got called on a story out in Skamania County where uh, there was a, uh, a helicopter logging crew who was doing some work, and uh, the pilot radioed down while well, the guys had put their lunch boxes and stuff on this big boulder, and uh, the pilot happened to look down and see this creature was sneaking up on their lunches, and he called down and said, hey, you know, I got something coming up, sneaking up on your lunches. And, and then I went there and found 18-inch footprints, so... Um, you know, that panned out, wow. but, uh, 
you know, there are plenty of accounts where you see it, you hear about them sneaking up on, on uh, food and things like that. You know, I think about it. it it's not sneaking up on the food because, um, well, I, I, I would say it's not sneaking up on the food like a bear or a dog would be able to smell the food from a far, from a long distance. I wonder if it's sneaking up on the food because, again, it was able to reason maybe through observation that this is food. You know, that he'd, he'd seen them, you know, maybe previously watching, get a food drop. Right, watching yeah. the workers eat from those containers, you know. So after a while, they if you see that a few days in a row, you, you probably figure, okay, those they got something in there that I can eat. And, and it kind of cracks me up that he's sneaking up on it. While the workers are right there. You know, he could walk up to it, and I can just about guarantee you the workers would move, they would back off. Well, the thing is, you got the helicopter, then you've got, you know, probably half a dozen guys who were there and one creature. So it's kind of a numbers thing. If there's more humans than there are them, then they're very wary. If there had been a group of the creatures, it might have been a different story. Yeah. I still like the idea of it walking up, but yeah, I think you're right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and that's the other thing. If if you have those three stories, I'm just going to go out on a limb and say there's, you know, there's probably other interesting stories like that as well. We just haven't heard them. So. Oh, yeah, there's plenty out there. If you're on a firefighting crew and you have a story like that, uh, shoot us an email questions or loggers or logger yeah anybody for that matter yeah. actually yeah this isn't limited if you've had an encounter uh just shoot us a question um uh, an email questions at creekdevil.com next question yes okay so got another question for you um this this person says we're approximately three miles south as a crow flies from Ape Canyon. So, Will, you know where that is, right? Oh, yeah. Okay, located in the Gifford Pinchot National Forest. And from there, we drive east to an unserviceable road for another three miles. It was blocked by a gate and set up camp for, for the night. <clears throat> Our purpose was to get out. You know, they just want to kind of get out of town, I guess, but hoping to hear sounds. From Sasquatch, he said, "Be careful what you wish for." Well, we would agree. Um, he wanted to know, "Have you been around this area at all? And if so, um, can we expect to have a chance to hear any vocals? What are your thoughts?" Um, yeah, there's always a chance. I mean, I know that area. Uh, there's activity in that area, but um, it's it's always a crapshoot with vocals. I mean, it just depends on what they're doing. It really does, and again, I think about that that loud roar that you guys heard. I don't how how far was it from this area? Oh, quite a ways. That was up in the Olympic Mountains. Oh, okay. The up on the Olympic Peninsula. West. Yeah. Yeah. But I've heard vocals uh, up around Mount Rainier too. But you know, you can be again. It just you can be very close to these things. You don't have a clue, and. Uh, well, it might be a real treat to get roared at. Maybe it's not. I don't know. <laughs> Darcy, you said you heard gibberish. When when did you hear that, and how did that situation unfold? Um, um, 
it was I've told y'all before um, on one of the episodes. Um, I was going out to the car to get my phone, and when I went out the first time, I saw the big blonde one walking the tree line, and I went back in the house and gave myself about twenty minutes. And when I finally went back out there and got the nerve to do it, I got my phone, and I was coming back in. That's when I heard the gibberish in the woods, um, right beside my house. Darcy, what did the what did the gibberish sound like? Oh, you know, I cannot even begin to make that noise. It's just gibberish. It's, you know, I want to say it's like the samurai talk, but it's different. It's it's gibberish. Right. See, that's what we heard up at Mount Rainier. You know, people always, they, and they say this, they use the example of samurai talk, but what I heard was nothing like what I would think of something like that. It was gibberish. It was just plain gibberish. It's gibberish. To me, it's gibberish. It's, you couldn't make it out. You know it's a language, you know they're talking, and I know it was more than one, and I know I was getting in the house real fast. I didn't stick around too long. So, you know, I it's it's gibberish. I can't begin to tell you how it sounds. It's it's loud and it's fast. It's just gibberish to me. Yeah, that's the way I describe it too. It was very fast. Well, Tom, what do we have in the way of questions? Keep this um, moving. <clears throat> okay, so um, Bill wants to know what is the maximum height, uh, realistic height, that you know of that these creatures can achieve? Well, that's, a, that's a very good question. Um, I've heard a number of times. Well, there have been people in the past that have said up to 14 feet tall. I suppose it's possible, but um, when you look at the footprints, that's really really gives you the picture. The average size on a footprint is uh, anywhere from 13 to up to 17 inches. I've seen them up to 19 inches, um, and I think that's that's close to 11 feet. That's that's about 10 and three quarters feet tall. Uh, some good reports, good reliable ones, up around 11 foot. So, personally, I, I would think 11, 12 feet would be the, the ceiling. You know, there could be some more, I, I don't know, but uh, based on the footprints. Well, that the brings up another. By my house, we measured from where I saw the top of the head um, down to, you know, with the tree level and everything, and that's a good 12 feet. Yeah, yeah, I think I think that's probably yeah. probably about the ceiling for height for them. I could be wrong, but uh, there were stories like the Ruby Creek incident happening in British Columbia that John Green wrote about. I think the family there estimated 14 feet, but they were scared. So, you know, and, and if it goes by a fixed object like yours did, Darcy, where you can measure it, that's a really good mm -hmm. that's a really good sign there. I mean, that's that's good and accurate. Um, of course, we you know, like yeah. I said, mostly. Yeah. We, Go ahead, I'm sorry. The black one was about eight feet, though. Yeah. So, but the, the blonde one, when I say the, the big blonde one, he was huge. And I Easy. And I think that's a different variety than the other two. The other two, you said, look pretty similar to one another? Yeah, they um, they had real long, shaggy hair, almost matted-like. Um, the black one, because it was facing me, 
you know, the hair was so long around its face. Um, and the blonde one to me had very short, very short hair. Mm-hmm. I can make, I can make out all the muscle in the back, the back movement and the shoulders and everything. I could literally see the muscle. Yeah. That kind of indicates to me they're two different varieties and you haven't seen that one with the other two, right? No. Okay. No. Yeah. Typically those different yeah. variations won't hang around together. Yeah, it kind of brings up an interesting question. Is there a is there um, a growth inhibiting hormone that you're aware of? Or, you know, we all have it. There's something that is, you know, if you, you ever want to get people with a deficiency and they get gigantism, but you know, it uh, causes health issues. Are you aware of anything like different yeah, species of a different type of the species? Looking I would at agree. The, the type that I saw, one may get larger than the other. Mm-hmm. Well, there, there yeah. are a couple of varieties out here in the West that are that are like that. Uh, you know, you see the one like we're going to use a good example of Patterson creature. Um, you know, it's very muscular, very stocky, almost like a tree trunk. Um, not a huge amount of definition, which is like what I saw. I mean, the ones I saw were even. Even more, I guess what you'd say, like a tree trunk, because they were so massive. They were they were more massive than what you see on the Patterson film. Uh, then you go farther east, and, and I was told, you know, by my sources, those were designed or they're they're built more for mountainous terrain. That's why they're so muscular. Um, you go east of those mountains where it's more plains region, uh, and they're they're slimmer. They're um, more designed for running open ground running than the type in the mountains. So that's a couple different variations, for example. Well, that would explain why I keep telling you how muscular he is, but not the not bulk. Does that make sense? Yeah, right, right. Yeah, I mean, we'd have to look but at... The, have to look the at, other two were just bulky. Just bulky, yeah. We'd have to really look at the type of terrain in the region to see, you know, that usually has some effect on those developments you know the divisions in a species where you know it's what they uh what one gene pool develops based on their surroundings versus another one so it'd be interesting to see uh what those terrains are like you know we've talked about in the past the uh the type four which you know actually is very possibly not one of these things at all it's actually something entirely different yeah, that's a very different variation. Much more, uh, I guess you'd call it Neanderthal-like. Right, right. People describe it as looking almost uh, very human. And I think, you know, that from what we've heard, that I mean, six and a half feet is pretty average for these things. Yeah, for that variation, sure. I mean, especially if you go back to the Minnesota Iceman, where uh, Frank Hansen actually when he shot that creature there were actually three of them there you know with the deer that he shot and and he said they were all about the same height and same build so that's you know what three of those creatures is hmm, three too many <laughs> three too many exactly <laughs> if you're out there alone it's three too many it's one too many <laughs> you know I, I had to think about it you know reading the story that he wrote I, I thought holy cow you know two of them took off and the other one came running direct. It charged him, is what it did, and and that's when he shot it. 
but uh well and it was gruesome i mean they were scooping up blood and then just slurping it down right right um that in and of itself for us is kind of a kind of a grim sight to see now we've just become too prissy (laughs) yeah i like i like my blood cooked you know um Yeah. Hey, yeah, I'm that, female. I get to be. I get to be prissy. Okay. Okay. Well, you there, will let you, you be. Go. Absolutely. <laughs> but you know, we we do get the, um, quite a few reports. Actually, that gentleman we spoke with, I uh, don't remember his name. I apologize off the top of my head, in Maryland, who encountered these things in it was almost certainly these the type fours that he was seeing that wasn't mike was it might have been yes he had special access to one of the state parks up there yeah 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 i mean there's see that's and that's a problem with the topic too you know it's it's presented like they're all there's all just one kind and and people you get a lot of different I mean, you're going to expect to have different variations in, in description when you have witnesses because, like in any population, you know, no no creature, they're, they're not carbon copies of one another. There's going to be some variations. You can recognize individuals. But there's enough differences with these creatures, depending on where you are in the country, where there's some clear indications that there are different variations. So I think that's what throws a lot of people off when they look at this subject. Yeah, that's a very important point. And also, even though there's four different basic types, and I think you've said there's as many as 22 different subcategories. Yeah, I was told there were 22 variations. There's four main species groupings, but 22 variations. Right, and you'd expect that in any, you know, you're going to get a variation in species. And especially a landmass the size of North America, of course, you know, that's, that's how you get those kind of variations. Sure. But well, one... you'd be surprised at how many people think there's only one Bigfoot. Oh, yeah, I still hear that. And yeah. I'm like, no, they're, they're a breeding population. You know, that's what gets me. Yeah, well, it makes sense. I mean, you can't have one. It's like saying, uh, Darcy, it's like saying I have one mouse in my house because I see it once in a while. <laughs> no, you got a lot of them. <laughs> Well, even in this uh, even in this topic, now this is another point. Um, whenever we talk to someone who who has, it's kind of a weird situation for them because they see the creature, and then it disappears, and then moments later, it's it's almost a physical impossibility how it got to another location, whether it's on one side of the road, then the other side of the road, or farther away. Um, and and the simplest reason is because there's more than one individual there. Yeah, there's a an attorney here. Said if there's one, there's another. Exactly. That's exactly right. Yeah, there's a kind of a well-known case of an attorney who actually lives here in Oregon. And um, he's an ex-Marine. He, he was a cop, and he ran into one of these things up in the woods. He looked at it. You know, he was, he was trying to take a compass reading. This is late 90s, so pre-GPS days. And so he's, you know getting in azimuth with with his compass and he sees this thing on a boulder looking back at him tilts his head this thing tilts its head mimicking him exactly 
So at that point, I would be leaving, but this guy decides to pursue it and, you know, get a closer look. And he, I guess he went into the woods for a couple hours when he finally realized, you know, it's going to be getting dark soon. And he commented how, you know, it was making noise first to his right. And somehow the creature had snuck around without him aware of it to his left. And I'm like, no, it did not. Well, when I first <laughs> got a group of them, when I first talked to Lee that we had on the show a couple of times, um, he was telling me his story and his story was that basically in, if you're interested folks, you can listen to those episodes, but, um, he was, he was very close to one individual. Um, I mean, he could have reached out and touched it with his arm and it was sort of a standoff because he had the rifle pointed, pointed at it through some brush and it was on the other side of the brush. We could have easily reached through and broke his neck. He said, then it, then it left. And then just a moment later, he looks down this road and it's way down a long ways away. And he said, I, I just couldn't, I couldn't justify in my mind how it could have possibly been right here. And then a moment later it was way down there. And I said, because that was two different individuals. And it was, it looked like somebody slapped him because it hadn't, it hadn't, right. it, I remember him talking about that. That was, yeah, it hadn't occurred to him. There could have been more than one. Yeah, he was, that was the one where he said it, it was, he just knew as a moment of, you know, if, if I pull the trigger, it's going to be mutually assured destruction. Right. Right. I'm going to kill it. It's going to kill me. And I didn't understand until just now when you explained that. So he, it was right there. It turned around. It just kind of, he said, I got a bored look on its face, walked off. Right. Okay. And that's what it was. So then. And it was just a moment later. He looked and he, and he, he said, I, I couldn't believe it was already way down there on this road. And I said, that's because there were two of them. Yeah. And it just hadn't occurred to him. There could have been more than one. I mean, one's enough. One's plenty. <laughs> one is one too many. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I think oftentimes that confuses people. You know, and they, they don't understand there could be multiple creatures present. Mm-hmm. But who would think that? Yeah, you're, you're going to assume that, that there's the one. I mean, it's enough of a shock that there's something right there that shouldn't exist, let alone three, four, five of them nearby. Yeah, that would be... <laughs> that would be an underwear changing moment well even in my first situation you know I, I come face to face with the one and then shot in the air to see if that would spook it and the other one come walking around and I thought oops now it's time to do what the dog did get the hell out of here <laughs> which I did <laughs> I, I have no shame about running let me tell you <laughs> did you, did you have any thought that it would be pursuing you Oh, I thought it was going to be breathing down my neck any second. And was really happy and relieved to see that it wasn't. <laughs> right? Well, do we have any more questions, Tom? Shall we move on? I haven't had a chance to get up and look at reader or listeners' questions this week yet. Okay, yeah. Um, we do have one. This is one that, well, you and I hear from time to time, and actually it kind of pops up in the Bigfoot community. And, you know, Baz, our previous guest, sort of had this. It's the whole eye shine thing. 
Now, Will, can you lay to rest? Do they, do you think, or do you think they don't have the ability to have self-illuminating eyes? No. And why would they, why would they not? No, they don't. Um, no mammal does. Uh, there are some fish species that do that live very deep in the ocean, and that's a specially developed uh, characteristic for that environment. But there aren't any mammals that do. When you see eye shine, it's it's a reflection from some form of light source. Yeah, right. Is it rods and cones, or what is it that causes that reflection? Uh, oh, I can't remember the explanation explanation off the top of my head. Yeah, it has to do with a. Uh, um, a structure in the eye that we don't really have. Um, you know, humans humans' eyes don't reflect light. Uh, you see it in, in pictures sometimes with flash, but that's right. I think that's a different situation. But uh, it's because animals with good, you know, that developed night vision. You know, the eye, uh, the light comes in, the residual light, and it sort of bounces around in there more so than it does in our eyes because light comes in and it's bounced back out. Um, bears, it stays in a little bit longer so that it can, cre- you know, create that image for their brain to see what's there. Oh, that's interesting. Mm. Yeah, we should get somebody on. We should get our uh, our MD friend, KD, on. He can explain all that very well. I hate trying to explain yeah. something technical when, you know, I don't have the uh, the tools to do that. We get somebody that's an expert that can do that. Well, here's here's another thought. If the eyes are self-illuminating, that would be like having ears that can produce their own audio. It would has, it would serve. It'd be counterproductive. Well, it'd be like it'd be like a walking flashlight. You know, I mean, if you're a yeah. predator, especially. That's not too good. You're out at night and you're illuminating the prairie for the prey to see where you are. <laughs> right? That's kind of yeah, counterproductive. That's, that's, that's going to be a very skinny Bigfoot. Right. And even if it wasn't projecting light, just the fact that they were visible. Uh, I mean, it takes very little to uh, uh, to warn a prey animal that a predator's nearby. <laughs> right. Right. You know, a good example of that is, you know, anybody that's hunted... You know, what's what's the one thing you don't do is when you got the deer in your sights, don't take the gun off the safety at that time. Already have right. it, already have it off the safety because if they hear that one little click and it's a little click, they'll bolt. They're gone. Yeah. Not that I know anything about that, but I've heard about that. I've seen it happen. I have too. <laughs> I won't be afraid to admit that. I've seen it happen. You learn the hard yeah. you learn the hard way. <laughs> Yeah, we had one in this this when I was a kid. We had one in the sights and pulled the trigger and click. Oh, you got to chamber the round first. <laughs> <laughs> I never made that mistake. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't me. It was my buddy. <laughs> oh, I see. Okay. <laughs> but but that took care of that. I mean, it's a click and then with the chambering the round. Yeah, that's the end of that. <laughs> Darcy, have you seen eye shine there with the creatures? The only time I've seen it is when we were actually, um, we had a flashlight and we were trying to look into the bamboo area where we heard movement and there it was. How would you describe it? Um, 
you know, people say red. I didn't see red. Mine was more of a golden color, I guess is the best way to say it. Mm-hmm. See, that's that's what I've seen. I, you know, I, and, and that was, you know, going back to Green and some of the other early people who wrote about this topic, they would put stories in there. And, and there were actually very few where people said they had red eye shine. And I think people, especially reporters, are the ones who picked up on this and smell and stuff like that. You know, they, they pick out a few key things that kind of really grab people, and, you know, kind of the fear factor. And that's what they run with. So that's what everybody thinks. But in reality, most often the eye shine is amber colored. Um, there can be some different, sh- you know, variations, some, you know, reddish, some other color. But that's usually the light source that causes that. But mostly amber. I've seen it a couple or good, really good a couple of times. Uh, at Yakult when we did the investigation and both those times they were amber yeah um, I don't know where where people are getting the red because and that's where it throws me off I'm like well I know what I saw um, but I thought well maybe it's different yeah I mean I guess I guess it could be you know especially the uh, you know depending on the light source I'm not exactly sure what you know, I, we talked to somebody one time that knew something about that. We'll have to see if we can find that again about, you know, the different light sources and, and the kind of the coloration that can cause in an animal's eye shine. But, uh, well, here's a question because could it be that Darcy has more than one type there? Could it be that the different types might have uh, a little different eye structure? And maybe they have different color to it. Yeah, I suppose anything is possible. I don't really know, but I can't say no. I mean, I, I have no idea. I don't know enough about it. Uh, you know, I can only say what I've seen. It's the same thing, you know, we talked about the different things that media people, newspaper writers picked up on with this topic and sort of sensationalized. Smell is one of those. You know, I've done this many, many years now, and uh, I've only smelled something one time. And it was like Barry talked about. It was, you know, he, he was driving along, and that, that odor hit his truck, and he and he couldn't tolerate it. You know, we had the same situation. We got called out on a, on a sighting, and we went to the location and, and walked into a wall of stink that made us wretch. I mean, we had to walk out of it. It was so bad. And, and when we did... I said, and it was raining. It was raining that day. So you know how when it rains, that sort of depresses odors in the air? Uh, and it was so strong, it just didn't. I mean, it was it was hitting us with full force. Uh, we walked out of it, and we came back a moment later, and it was gone. And um, so there was a flattened area in the moss, so we knew something was right there inside the tree line watching us. And and I suspect, and that's something, you know, Green and Hinden and those guys told me that, you know, years ago, they said, oh, yeah, this stuff doesn't happen as often as the media makes it out to be you know it was actually oh, yeah. very rare that people re- would report smell uh, even when i encountered the creatures i did at that close range i was 20 feet or less from those creatures i never smelled anything um and it could be because of scent glands you know like i said you know will i thought it was my septic tank when i first moved down yeah here. right this is before smelling the creature mm-hmm and I would smell it early in the morning, and I'm thinking, and they come out and check, and was nothing wrong with it. Um, you know, that's the only time, and the time that my nephew 
was going outside and he smelled it. I think, Other than that, I've never smelled them. I think it's when they get agitated. And I think that's the same with other primates that have scent glands. It's when they get agitated uh, that they, they emit that odor. So just some food for thought, folks. I mean, you know, there are some of these things that get sensationalized or repeated often enough out there don't really have that much foundation in their basis. So what do you think, Tom? Any other things that um, get sensationalized? Well, I think the whole topic is, is and I, I can't completely... Um, I really can't blame the the media because, let's face it, I, I don't think there's many, if any, in the media who are, are really familiar with the topic, and so they have. That's how they make a living is they got to glob on to, and unfortunately, it's become a tabloid topic. Well, I suppose it's more uh, interesting to write a story with a big stinky monster with glowing red eyes than it is. Oh, you know, so-and-so watched this thing walk across the road. It was big. It had hair all over it, and that was it. Yeah. That's a good point, yes. Absolutely. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so, and again, going back to, you know, there's been kind of a uh, metamorphosis or kind of an evolution in how this topic is treated in the media. We've talked about this many times on the show. It used to be it used to be treated with, you know, it was a serious topic. You know, it might be a human interest story, but sometime, I don't know, probably around the early '80s, uh, maybe late '70s, wouldn't you agree that it just suddenly be started to become more of a um, kind of a silly tabloid kind of a subject? Well, I think it did partly because, you know, things were sort of going in the right direction up until and just after Patterson got his film. And then after that, there was zero forward movement in terms of evidence. And I think after that, people sort of started thinking, well, yeah, this is all garbage. So they started making fun of it. Right. And that's how, and it sounds like that's kind of the, uh, sort of where it's at in Australia. You know, that's really, uh, I don't want to say a taboo topic, but it's it's just not it's in, it's not in the norm. Yeah, I and sort of bring it up. I kind of get the sense it's sort of where this topic was here, maybe in the '60s. Exactly. Yeah, you know, it's it's yeah. still emerging. Now the benefit that they have, or that we all have, is um, you know the internet sharing of information. There's the good and the bad that comes with that. Well, I think the good. I think the good thing is we get to talk to people there, you know, that are open to discussing what it is they've experienced or other people have. Uh, whereas, let's say back in the '60s here, uh, that just wasn't available and it didn't happen. Yeah, very good yeah. point. It was more tabloid stuff, you know. I mean, it, back then, True Magazine and and Argosy and some of those were considered tabloid, you know, type magazines. You know, I remember reading them, you know, and thinking, ooh, this is really cool. You know, I didn't know that it was supposed to be, you know, this category. It seemed all real to me. So, um, just, it was, they were packaged well. But, yeah. but that was, yeah. but that was kind of the only outlet, really. 
and periodically local newspapers. And John Green, I thought, did an excellent job of researching and finding these little stories from actually going back to the early 1900s. Yeah, a lot of that, a lot of that was DeHinden. You know, he started he started all that digging and then put Green onto it. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, he he was the initial one that got the ball rolling. Well, I have uh, three of John Green's books. Those are recommendations from you, and they're thorough with with information. Have, newspaper clippings. Have you ever read those or seen those books, Darcy? I've read one, or started to. I don't think I've finished it yet. Gonna have to get you copies um, of the other two. Um, but I found it very interesting. Um, I think t- today we can talk more openly without the backlash. Um, I find more people interested in hearing the story than, um, especially if I mention it at work, if they live close to me, they're more interested than versus, oh, that can't be real. Yeah, I think you're right. I've gotten that, I've gotten that for people to, in fact, even I've had people at work that'll, you know, if they've seen something on TV, I'm the first person they come and tell about it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I found out, you know, um, my neighbors, probably about a mile and a half from where I live at, they were out hunting and they saw eyeshine and they heard the vocalization. So the more people I ask that I find that live close by, the more I hear. Oh, I'm sure. You know, and that's just it. I think even, well, like where I grew up, I'll give you that example. All these years later, I'm still hearing from uh, people who grew up in the same area that saw or heard something. It's just that they wouldn't talk about it. So I, that's the thing. If you can go around and talk to people, uh, especially if it's a neighbor, you know, they're more likely to talk to you than anybody like if we came there and talked to them. Oh, yeah, I was cutting his son's hair, and he goes, oh, Miss Darcy, we blah, 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 you know, we were hunting right in that area because we didn't have much area, and this is what happened. And and I thought that was pretty cool. It just, not that I need validation because I've seen it. Sure. But it, it felt good. Well, Darcy, it also, it sounds to me like there's an element of trust there. They trust you. And that they can share this with you. Oh yeah, I had um, a gentleman in my chair yesterday, and we were—they were joking about it. Some of the girls, you know, at work, and then, and I said, "No, I've got evidence." And he says, "No, you don't." And he's watched about the tree structures and stuff. And when I pulled him up on my phone, his mouth dropped open. He was like, "Oh, oh," you know, it, you know, it stops the joking right, right then and there. Mm-hmm. Oh, if that's they good. Show any kind of evidence, and if they know anything about the subject, they shut up. I think a lot of people there's a visceral reaction that uh, I, I've experienced it a few times. People have actually gotten very angry, and I think they're just trying to distance themselves from the foolishness and the you it's know self defense mechanism. Yeah, self defense yeah, mechanism exactly. for sure. Yeah. Well, listen, guys, we're just about out of time. Any final thoughts, Darcy, Tom? 
Well, I just want to thank everybody for tuning in. And if you like the show, be sure to hit the thumbs up and hit the subscribe button if you haven't already. Keep up to date with all of our latest episodes. And uh, we love the questions. We really do. So it's uh, it's a toughie. Questions, questions, plural, at creekdevil.com. We'd love to hear from you. Darcy, we certainly... And thanks for having me again, guys. Oh, always. We certainly appreciate you taking the time, and you're always welcome to come back. Yeah, don't forget to hit the notification bell. Absolutely. You're right, Darcy. Thank you. You're welcome. (laughs) All right, everyone. (laughs) Stay tuned for the next segment. My name is Martin Elliott. The incident occurred when I was about 10 or 11 years old, so in 1972 or 1973. At the time, I lived in Puyallup, Washington, in the South Hill area, Shaw Road, near a housing development called Forest Green. When this occurred, myself, my stepbrother, and a neighborhood friend whose name I can't remember, we were just out playing in the woods. My friend, my stepbrother, and myself were playing in an area off of a dirt road approximately half a mile off of Shaw Road near the Kate Dairy Farm Pasture. We went up into this dirt road about a half mile up and went into some trees that we had an area that we liked to consider our camp that had some downed trees and it wasn't far off the road. We were sitting there, just as kids do, you know, playing and stuff, and uh, we heard a sound that sounded to myself like a lady screaming or a baby, you know, cry out. It was just one loud cry. That was it. We talked about it, and we thought, what was that? And the friend that was with us said, well, maybe it was a horse from the pasture. I said, that doesn't sound like a horse. Well, maybe two or three minutes later, we got this smell started coming around us, and it smelled like, you know, burnt match heads or rotten eggs, and we couldn't really figure out what was going on. And we were still sitting there towards the roadside near the trees that we were at. About seven to eight feet into the trees, the tree limbs pushed aside. And there, standing before us, was a Bigfoot, a Sasquatch. We basically just froze and stared at it for just like, I mean, it seemed like forever. But I know that it was about probably 30 seconds before we panicked and took off running. All three of us ran as fast as we could back to our house. He ran back to his house, and me and my stepbrother ran back to our house. After that, we had told our parents about it, and we were pretty panic-stricken about it. We told our parents about it, and my mom at the time worked at the Daffodil Bowling Alley in Puyallup, and she and my stepfather were talking at the coffee shop about the incident and were telling their friends. A couple of gentlemen walked up and said, Excuse me, we are from the University of Oregon. We are here in town doing some Bigfoot research, And would you feel okay with us coming and interviewing your son? They said, sure, no problem. They came up to our house, and we sat at the dining room table where they basically interviewed me about the situation, about what had happened, showed me some sketches, and asked me if this is what it looked like or if that is what it looked like. Had me describe the scent and had me listen to tape recordings and said, well, did it sound like this tape recording or like that tape recording? And so they did a pretty extensive interview. They felt at the time that we were not pranking them, so that was the extent of it. 
If I can describe the best description I have for the creature that I saw, he or she or it was, I would say, seven and a half to eight feet tall. It had a brown-black hair that was probably three to four inches long, covering, you know, its whole body except for its hands. And I really didn't look at its feet. I just saw its hands because of the way it held the branches back. Its face was a kind of cross between an aboriginal Australian and a gorilla. That's the easiest way I can describe it. It made no attempt at all to chase us or anything. It just watched us. It just looked at us. So basically, that's my story. It's been a situation where I talked about it when I was a kid. Everybody thought I was an idiot. You know, thought I was crazy. So it was something that, through most of my life, I really don't tell anybody about. It's not something that I ever really tell anyone. But at the time, around that area, after our sighting, there was quite a bit of activity in the Puyallup area. And so I hope this is helpful to you. And feel free to contact me if you have any more questions. Welcome. This is a series of three stories being brought to you by William Jevning and being narrated by me, Jim Sower. Story number one. Boston Daily Times, Monday morning, April 1st, 1839. Wild man captured with two cubs. When will wonder cease? Robert Lincoln Esquire, agent of the New York Western Lumber Company, has just returned from the St. Peter's River, near the head of steamship navigation on the upper Mississippi, bringing with him a living American orangutan, or wild man of the woods, with two small cubs, supposed to be about three months old. Mr. Lincoln informs us that he went out to the Northwest as agent of the New York Lumber Company, in July last, with a view to establish extensive sawmills on the pine lands near the falls of St. Anthony, and he has given us a detail of the operations of the company and the circumstances which led to the capture of the extraordinary creatures mentioned above. Those who are acquainted with the leading features of the valley of the Mississippi are aware that there is little or no pine timber throughout the states of Illinois and Missouri or in the extensive territories of Wisconsin and Iowa. The inhabitants of that region are obliged to use oak and walnut for common building purposes, and the labor of working such materials is very great. The greatest portion of the pine timber that finds its way into the upper part of the valley is floated down the Ohio, and from thence carried up the Mississippi and Illinois rivers by steamboats. The most ordinary kind of pine timber is worth $60 per thousand in any part of Illinois or the territories. In New England, the same quality sells for about half that sum. There are some very extensive and immensely valuable pine lands near the falls of St. Anthony on the upper Mississippi, but until recently they have been in the possession of the Sac and Fox Indians. In the summer of 1838, a treaty was ratified with these Indians by which they ceded the whole of their pine lands to the United States. The ceremonies for this treaty were performed at Fort Snelling about the 1st of July last. Captain Marriott, the famous English novelist, was then on the upper Mississippi, and was present to witness the war dances on the occasion, which, it is said, were conducted with unusual splendor. He also spent several days among the Indians, and by the assistance of the American officers at Fort Snelling, obtained a large collection of ornaments, 
and curiosities. Some shrewd men at Albany and New York, who knew that the treaty referred to was about to be ratified, and who were aware also of the value of the timber, formed a company with a substantial capital, and engaged a large number of enterprising mechanics and laborers to go out and establish sawmills for cutting timber on the St. Peter's. They rightly supposed that the land would not come into market, as the phrase is, for several years, as it is worth but little except for timber. Those who wish to obtain land for cultivation go into the more fertile parts of the territories. Companies may therefore claim land, establish mills, and cut off the timber wherever they can find it, without fee or license. The timber may then be floated down the Mississippian rafts for a mere trifle, and sold at the highest prices anywhere on the river. The New York Company sent out their expedition in July last. The workmen and laborers, with the principal part of the machinery, went by way of New Orleans, and at that city they chartered a steamboat to proceed up the Mississippi. The whole business was under the direction of Mr. Lincoln. They had on board all the necessary tools and saws, together with the apparatus for a grist mill, oxen, horses, cows, a good stock of provisions, arms, ammunition, etc., etc. They passed directly up the river, only stopping to take in wood and water, until they reached Prairie du Chien, at the mouth of the Wisconsin. Here they put their animals on shore, and remained two days. On the third day they re-embarked, and finally reached the St. Peter's in safety. Their enterprise proved highly successful. They found the timber of the first quality, and the facilities for building mills much greater than they anticipated. The work went on very prosperously, and in a few months Mr. Lincoln had the satisfaction of launching his rafts on the headwaters of the Mississippi. They continued to prosecute their labors vigorously until winter set in, when a part of the workmen started for St. Louis, and a part of them remained to superintend the cutting of timber. During the winter, Mr. Lincoln and several of the workmen made frequent excursions in pursuit of game, which was very abundant, and their camp was one continued scene of festivity. The Indians brought in large quantities of furs, which Mr. Lincoln purchased for a mere trifle, and lined his cabins with them throughout, which rendered his rude huts very warm and comfortable. The whole party were in as hearty as bucks, and appeared to enjoy themselves exceedingly. About the 15th of January, two of the carpenters who had been out in pursuit of a gang of wolves that had proved very troublesome, came into the camp and reported that they had seen a huge monster in the forest, on a branch of the Mississippi, having the form of a man, but much taller and stouter, covered with long hair, and of a frightful aspect. They stated that when first seen he was standing on a large log, looking directly at them, and the moment they raised their muskets he darted into the thicket and disappeared. They saw him again in about half an hour, apparently watching them, and when they turned towards him he again disappeared. Mr. Lincoln was at first disposed to think lightly of this matter, believing that the men might have been mistaken about the size and height of the object, or supposing it might have been the trick of the Indians to frighten them. He was informed, however, by some of the natives that such a being had often been seen on the St. Peter's, and near the falls of the Mississippi, 
and they proposed to guide a party of the workmen to a bluff, where it is thought he might be found. The men were all ready for an adventure, and arming themselves with rifles and hunting knives, they started for the bluff under the direction of Mr. Lincoln and the Indian guides. On the way, they were joined by several of the natives. The whole party numbered twenty-three. They arrived at the bluff late on the afternoon of the 21st of January, and encamped in a cave, or grotto, at the foot of the hill. Early the next morning, two of the Indians were sent out to reconnoiter, and in about an hour returned, and said they had seen the wild man on the other side of the hill. The whole party immediately prepared for the pursuit. Mr. Lincoln gave positive orders to the men not to fire upon him unless it should be necessary in self-defense, as he wished, if possible, to take him alive. The Indian stated that although a very powerful creature, he was believed to be perfectly harmless, as he always fled at the approach of men. While Mr. Lincoln was giving his men their instructions, the wild man appeared in sight. He ordered them to remain perfectly quiet and taking out his pocket-glass, surveyed him minutely. He appeared to be about eight or nine feet high, very athletic, and more like a beast standing erect than a man. After satisfying himself with regard to the character of the creature, Mr. Lincoln ordered his men to advance. The Indians had provided themselves with ropes, prepared to catch wild horses, with which they hoped to ensnare and bind the creature, without maiming him. The instant the company moved towards the wild man, he sprung forward with a loud and frightful yell, which made the forest ring. The Indians followed close upon him, and Mr. Lincoln and his men brought up the rear. The pursuit was continued for nearly an hour, now gaining upon the object of their chase, now almost losing sight of him. The trees, however, were quite open and free from underbrush, which enabled them to make their way very rapidly. Whenever they came very near him, he started forward again with a yell and appeared to increase his speed. He finally darted into a thicket, and although they followed close and made much search, they were unable to find him. They then began to retrace their steps toward the place of encampment, and when within about a mile of the cavern, the wild man crossed their path within twenty rods of the main body of the party. They immediately gave chase again, and accidentally drove the creature from the forest into an open field or prairie. The monster appeared to be much frightened at this situation, and leaped forward, howling hideously. At length he suddenly stopped and turned upon his pursuers. Mr. Lincoln was then in the advance. Fearing that he might attack them, or return to the woods and escape, he fired upon him, enlarged a charge of buckshot in the calf of his leg. He fell immediately, and the Indians sprang forward and threw their ropes over his head, arms, and legs, and with much effort succeeded in binding him fast. He struggled, however, most desperately, gnashed his teeth, and howled in a frightful manner. They then formed a sort of litter of branches and limbs of trees, and placed him upon it, carried him to the encampment. A watch was then placed over him, and every effort made that could be devised to keep him quiet, but he continued to howl most piteously all night. Towards morning, two cubs, about three feet high, and very similar to the large monster, came into camp, 
and were taken without resistance. As soon as the monster saw them, he became very furious, gnashed his teeth, and howled, and thrashed about until he burst several of the cords, and came very near effecting his escape. But he was bound anew, and after that was kept most carefully watched and guarded. The next day he was placed on the litter and carried down to the mills on the St. Peter's. For two or three days, Mr. Lincoln says, he refused to eat or drink, or take any kind of food, but continued to howl at intervals for an hour at a time. At length, however, he began to eat, but from that time his howls ceased, and he has remained stupid and sullen ever since. The cubs took food very readily, and became quite active and playful. Mr. Lincoln is a native of Boston, and some of the workmen engaged at his mills are from this city. He arrived here Saturday afternoon in the brig St. Charles, Stuart, master from New Orleans, with the wild man and the cubs, and they were all removed from the vessel that evening. By invitation, Mr. Lincoln, who is an old acquaintance, we went down to his rooms to examine his monster. He is a horrid-looking creature, and reminds us very strongly of the fabled satyrs, as we have pictured them in our own mind. He is about eight feet three inches high when standing erect, and his frame is of giant proportions in every part. His legs are not straight, but like those of the dog and other four-footed animals, and his whole body is covered with a hide very much like that of a cow. His arms are very large and long and ill-proportioned. It does not appear from his manner that he has ever walked upon all fours, the fingers and toes are mere bunches, armed with stout claws. His head is covered with thick, coarse black hair, like the mane of a horse. The appearance of his countenance, if such it may be called, is very disgusting, nay, almost horrible. It is covered with a thinner and lighter coat of hair than the rest of the body. There is no appearance of eyebrows or nose. The mouth is very large and wide, and similar to that of a baboon. His eyes are quite dull and heavy, and there is no indication of cunning or activity about them. Mr. Lincoln says he is beyond dispute carnivorous, as he universally rejects bread and vegetables, and eats flesh with great avidity. He thinks he is of the orangutan species, but from what little we have seen we are inclined to consider him a wild animal somewhat resembling a man. He is, to say the least, one of the most extraordinary creatures that has ever been brought before the public from any part of the earth, or the waters under the earth, and we believe will prove a difficult puzzle to the scientific. He lies down like a brute, and does not appear to possess more instinct than common domestic animals. He is now quite tame and quiet, and is confined by a stout chain attached to his legs. This is the first creature of the kind, we believe, ever found in this continent. It was to be expected, however, that in penetrating the remote recesses of the New World, monsters would be found, and great natural curiosities brought to light, and it has been a matter of surprise to many that so little of the marvelous has ever been discovered. But we cannot tell what the wilds of the far northwest, or the shores of Lake Superior, 
the regions of the Rocky Mountains and the vast territory of the Oregon may yet bring forth. It is Mr. Lincoln's intention to submit these animals to the inspection of the scientific for a few days in order to ascertain what they are, and after that to dispose of them to some persons for exhibition. Mr. Lincoln himself will return to the St. Peter's in the course of two or three weeks. P.S. Mr. Lincoln informs us that he will exhibit the wild man and his cubs gratuitously this forenoon in the rear of number 9 Elm Street. We presume our citizens will not be slow to take advantage of this offer. This ends the reading of Boston Daily Times. Wild man captured with two cubs, 1839, Monday morning, April 1st. And now, story number two. The Demons of the Himalaya Mountains. An adventure in 1888, Northern India. August 31st, 1888. Here's the haunted hollow for you last. Here's the haunted hollow for you at last, and it looks certainly ma- Here's the haunted hollow for you at last, and it looks certainly match its reputation. But it really is a striking bit of scenery, though perhaps not quite the sort of a place to bring a lady to a nightfall. In truth, I had good reason to say so, for in all the grim chaos of giant mountains through which my life In truth, I had good reason to say so, for in all the grim chaos of giant mountains through which my wife and I had been working our way as best we might for two days past, we had seen nothing so wild and gloomy as this, a dark and frightful chasm more than one thousand feet in depth and at least half a mile wide. Yawned. A dark and frightful chasm, more than one thousand feet in depth, and at least a half a mile wide, yawned between two mighty ridges of bare black rock, so steep that even the hardy trees of the mountains could scarcely find space to kink. And now... Story number two. The Demons of the Himalaya Mountains. An adventure in 1888, Northern India. August 31st, 1888. Here's the haunted hollow for you at last, and it looks certainly match its reputation, but it really is a striking bit of scenery, though perhaps not quite the sort of place to bring a lady to a nightfall. In truth, I had good reason to say so, for in all the grim chaos of giant mountains through which my wife and I had been working our way as best we might for the past two days, we had seen nothing so wild and gloomy as this. A dark and frightful chasm more than one thousand feet in depth, and at least half a mile wide, yawned between two mighty ridges of bare black rock so steep that even the hardy trees of the mountains could scarcely find space to cling to their towering sides. 
along the brink of this ghastly gulf, a narrow ledge path cut in the very face of the cliff, wound like a thread between the peasants. Along the brink of this ghastly gulf, a narrow ledge path, cut in the very face of the cliff, wound like a thread between the precipice above and the precipice below. Just at the spot where we were standing, the upper cliff made a deep curve inward, enclosing us in a kind of crescent midway between the two horns of which the lower cliff jutted out over the great void of blackness below in a sort of small platform. On its edge the gaunt white skeleton of a blasted tree, dead, sapless, hideously distorted, thrust itself out from the precipice as if to just about plunge headlong into the gulf below. All this, seen beneath the red and angry glare of a storm sunset which was fast dying behind the mighty snow peaks of the upper Himalaya, had the wildest and ghostliest effect that you can well imagine. We were still looking wonderingly at this grim panorama, when there suddenly arose at no great distance from us a cry, such as, with all my experience of startling sounds, I had never heard before, harsh, hideous, unearthly, yet mingled with the dreadful mockery of the sound of a human voice which made it doubly appalling. Now this very spot had an evil name throughout the whole neighborhood. Native legends told that several mountain chiefs had been decoyed to this rock platform by their hereditary foes on the pretext of a friendly conference, and then slaughtered or hurled into the abyss. It was said that the last survivor of the doomed band had invoked upon his treacherous slayers, with his dying breath, the vengeance of the mountain demons, and native superstition held that the spirits of evil had heard the call and still haunted this scene of treason and murder which the boldest mountaineers shudderingly avoided after dark. For myself, if I had not much faith in the guardian demons of the spot, I thought it just the place to be haunted by wild beasts and felt instinctively for my revolver the moment I heard the mysterious sound. But I felt in vain for... Being tired of carrying it about to no purpose, I had left it on our quarters. I had left it at our quarters just when it might at last have been of some use. Again the strange cry. Again the strange cry arose, louder and evidently nearer this time, but still with the same horrible parody of human call that had startled us before one of the dreadful half-human monsters of German legend, scenting his prey in the gloomy depths of some primeval forest, might have uttered just such a cry at this. One of the dreadful half-human monsters of German legend, scenting his prey in the gloomy depths of some primeval forest, might have uttered just such a cry as that. Well, that can't be a tiger, surely, said my wife who had unluckily left her revolver. That can't be a tiger, surely, said my wife, who had unluckily left her revolver behind likewise. No tiger could ever make a sound like that, I answered. I've heard their cry often enough, but whatever it may be, it's most likely something that won't be very good company in such a place, 
and at such an hour, so the sooner we're off the better. Scarcely had I finished speaking when a huge stone, coming apparently from the top of the cliff, struck with a tremendous crash right upon the path, barely a yard behind us, with such force as to dash up a thick cloud of dust all around it. That stone must have been thrown, said I, for a falling one would never strike so hard. If there is any fellow up there, if there is any fellow up there amusing himself by flinging rocks at us, we'd better give him a hint to leave off at once. I stepped forward accordingly and shouted with all my might in Hindustani to the supposed jester above us, spicing my challenge with one or two of those forcible native epithets which one picks up only too easily, I am sorry to say, in such a country as British India. My shout received a speedy and very startling answer. Hardly had I uttered it when a shrill scream broke forth overhead, followed by a horrible screeching laughter like the wild merriment of a maniac. These appalling sounds, coupled with the strange half-brutal cries that we had already heard, suggested to my mind a new and ghastly suspicion. Good heavens, I thought with a shudder, can there be a madman up there amongst those precipices? As if to answer my unspoken question, another scream broke forth, and a wild figure was seen leaping and dancing along the summit of the cliff. Then it suddenly descended the almost perpendicular face of the rock with such inconceivable agility that to my bewildered eyes it almost seemed to leap with one bound from the top of the bottom, from the Then it suddenly descended the almost perpendicular face of the rock with such inconceivable agility that, to my bewildered eyes, it almost seemed to leap with one bound from the top to the bottom, and, turning a somersault, planted itself right in the center of the path, now as if to cut off our retreat, greeting us with gestures of hideous menace. In the rapidly deepening darkness, it was not easy to make out what this frightful creature was like, but so far as we could see, it appeared to have the figure of a short, thick-set, deformed man with a huge, shaggy head, whose gnarling eyes and gnashing teeth in the rapidly darkening in the rapidly deepening darkness, it was not easy to make out what this frightful creature was like. But so far as we could see, it appeared to have the figure of a short, thick-set, deformed man with a huge, shaggy head, whose glaring eyes and gnashing teeth looked horribly unearthly amid the gloom. Our only chance now was apparently to slip away as quietly as possible in the opposite direction. But just then, as if to cut off our last hope, another monster of similar aspect issued from behind a projecting crag to our right and a third came clambering up over the edge of the platform to our left. We were surrounded. But now, as my eyes grew used to the darkness, and I could see these goblins more plainly, I recognized their short squat bodies, hairy faces, and long misshapen arms for what they really were. The supposed demons were mountain apes, and I could hardly wonder that the simple natives should have mistaken them for devils, for Dante himself could have imagined nothing more truly diabolical. But 
this discovery so far from lessening my anxiety only made it greater. I knew well the vast strength and brutal ferocity of these formidable creatures, and felt that if they were to attack us, as they seemed disposed to do, our lives would not be worth a straw. Unarmed as we were, we had no means of firing at them or fighting them, and as for attempted flight, it did not seem much thought. Unarmed as we were, we had no means of fighting them, and as for attempt at flight, it did not seem much Unarmed as we were, we had no means of fighting them, and as for attempt at flight, it did not need much thought to tell us that what chance we had of outrunning them. Oh, God damn it. Unarmed as we were, we had no means of fighting them, and as for attempt at flight, it did not need much thought to tell us what chance we had of outrunning or outclimbing a full-grown Himalayan ape. Hitherto, the brutes had contented themselves with chattering and grimacing, being apparently puzzled at our remaining so perfectly motionless. But this truce was not to last long. A stone hurled by one of the monsters with all his force suddenly whizzed within a few inches above my wife's face. The attack had begun. "'Give me your matches, quick,' said I, "'and we'll make a torch of these dry sticks. Fire is the only thing to scare them.' But before this could be done, the dilemma had solved itself in a very unexpected way. Another stone flung with the force of a shoe. But before this could be done, the dilemma had solved itself in a very unexpected way. Another stone flung by the force of a But before this could be done, the dilemma had solved itself in a very unexpected way. Another stone, flung with the force of a shoe by the brawny arm of the gentleman on our right, missed us by a hair's breadth, and plumped right into the broad, shaggy muzzle of his comrade on our left, making sad havoc of the latter's front teeth. Smarting with the pain, the injured jackal, flew as fiercely as a tiger at his offending brother, who met him with equal energy, while number three, by way of keeping the peace, fell furiously upon them both. In a trice the whole three were rolling on the ground in a kind of living ball, tearing, gnashing, foaming, clawing, and awakening with their savage yells all the echoes of the mountain. Now, I cried, seizing my wife's hand, run! We flew along with the breakneck we flew along the breakneck path at a pace which at any other time would have seemed to us quite impossible, but long after we had got out of sight of the field of action, the shrieks and howls of the combatants told us that the fight was still raging as furiously as ever. That story came from National Library of New Zealand. NZ. Source? Paul Cropper via Dmitry Bayanov, October 2009. And now, story number three. Washington County, Nashville, Illinois, July 2010. I'm going to tell you this story only once. 
I had never planned on telling it to anyone, ever. But here it goes. My name is Floyd, and I'm 40 years old, with no reason to make up a story like this. There is nothing to gain, nothing to lose, and I really am not trying to scare anyone. We all know there are many other things to be scared of in this world besides someone making up a crazy story about Bigfoot. I have read some really hard-to-believe stories about Bigfoot, but hey, whatever floats your boat. My encounter begins while on a fishing trip just south of Nashville, Illinois, at Washington County Lake. It was July 22, 2010. I decided to go catfishing. After loading up the boat and all my gear, I got to the ramp around 5.30 p.m. The sun was hot, so after putting the boat in, I headed for a cove on the northeast side of the lake where the trees shaded the water. I was anchored about 30 feet from the bank and enjoying the peace and quiet. I caught a mess of fish and decided to fish well into the night as the catfish was biting great. It was now about 11 p.m. and things started to stomp around in the woods. I figured it was deer or coons. I could hear the rustling around not far in the woods. It would make moving noises about ever 10 to 15 minutes. I never really thought much of it and was more into catching fish than worrying about an animal in the bushes. The time passed, and I heard a splash that made a sound uh, of a large rock being thrown into the water about twenty to thirty feet behind the boat. At first I thought someone was screwing around and threw a rock into the water. I looked at the clock. It was 1.27 a.m., now the 23rd. After thinking it over, I decided it had to be a fish, because for someone to be that far back into the woods, they had to walk a good distance, and I would have noticed a light. Plus, as big as the sound of the splash was, they had to have to be Superman to have threw a large rock that far out into the water. I continued fishing and never heard any other noises, and after a bit, I forgot all about the splash. As the fishing died down around 3 a.m., I decided to pack it up and head for the dock. As I was pulling the anchors out, I heard a noise in the woods just from the bank, like something was startled when I stood up and pulled the anchors. I figured I spooked a deer bedding down. I was only able to run my trolling motor on my boat because the lake has a 10 mile an hour speed limit and my motor was bigger than 10 horses, so as I'm trolling back to the dock, I hear the noise of whatever I spooked in the woods moving along the edge of the wood line as I moved in the water. Well, this went on for about three quarters of a mile, and I was now about 100 yards from the dock. All around the dock, bait shop, and bank, there are street lights in the dock area, and the woods thin out to none. As I reached this area, the movement in the woods stopped. Well, now I was curious as to what the hell animal would follow me like that. I tied off the boat and walked up to the parking lot to get the truck when I heard a grunt sound. I opened the truck door and it grunted again. So I fired up the truck and shined my headlights toward the area where the grunt came from. To my surprise was a large set of yellow eyes in the woods. As I studied them, I could see them blinking and noticed they looked really high in the air, eight feet or so. Not thinking anything fearful, I backed down the ramp and loaded the boat. After getting everything buttoned down and ready to head home, 
I got in the truck and headed up the ramp. I looked for the eyes in the same area and didn't see them. Leaving the lake consists of a 20 mile an hour speed limit and a winding road for a few miles. As I passed the check-in station close to the road, I heard a large bang like something hit the boat. So I stopped and got out to see if I had lost something. Everything looked fine. Nothing fell out, and as far as I could tell, nothing ran into the boat like a deer or whatever. So I got back into the truck before pulling off. I hear the noise again like something hit the boat. I hit the brake lights to light up the boat a bit and looked into the rear view. As I looked, I saw what looked like a very large man standing next to the boat. I was about to jump out and ask what the hell he was up to, when I got an eerie feeling and something just told me to drive. So I hit the gas with my eyes glued to the figure. As I took off, it started towards the truck, so I hit it, letting gravel fly. I was up to about 35 miles an hour when something hit the truck, making the truck shake. Well... Now I was done messing around and said piss on the speed limit. I guess I lost it, and at what speed, I don't know. When I got to the highway, I got out to check the truck, and there was and is still a nice dent high on the passenger side bed of the truck. I went home, unloaded the boat, grabbed a shotgun, and headed back out there. I crept along those roads till dawn looking for whatever it was that hit my truck, never seen a thing. I still fish there today, but not alone. Floyd Scott. This ends story number three. Thank you for listening. Welcome. This is a collection of six stories being brought to you by William Jevning and are being narrated by me, Jim Sower. Story number one, Bilaki Campground. Two, Klamath, California, 3. Little River State Beach, 4. Lucerne Valley, 5. Night Stalker of Edwards Air Force Base, and 6. A Scary Experience in Northern California. Story number 1. Wailaki Campground, King Range, California. Strange Sounds, Bigfoot, occurred in California the evening of September 13, 2001. Humboldt County, California, September 14, 2001. Last night, my girlfriend and I were camping in King Range, northwest coast of California, at the Wilaki Campground with only one other set of campers. We heard a very distinct thumping sound of heavy footsteps in the area about 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. The next day, on the way home, we spoke about it. We both immediately concluded it had to be something capable of heavy footsteps. Having both experienced multiple bear encounters, we could easily rule out a big bear or other similar four-legged beasts. As a result of the experience, we both very quickly shifted from Bigfoot skeptics to interested parties. Having read some information on the web, it seems a possible hearing of Bigfoot is uninteresting given all the sightings. Nevertheless, I felt confident enough that these unexplained sounds may in fact be valid, and therefore felt compelled to share them. The sounds were roughly one and a half seconds apart, and were quite heavy, much more than a human could be. We both got a good listen given that we were in our sleeping bags, 
ears near to the ground at the time, we both independently thought footsteps must belong to that of a sizable creature. If I had to guess, I would say that the weight would be around five hundred pounds and possibly more. The direction was unclear, however. I suspect the distance was within one hundred feet and probably were forty to fifty feet at the closest point. I did exit the tent briefly to relieve myself at a nearby tree during this time. The sounds came to an immediate halt. I could not see anything with my headlamp. I might have contacted the nearby campers regarding the incident, however, they had left earlier that morning. Although I was able to find plenty of information in terms of what Bigfoot looks like, I was unable to find information regarding walking sounds to confirm my suspicions. Any information provided would be welcomed. Also, if you think we could have heard something else, please offer an explanation. I am seeking to explain the incident. This is the end of story number one. Story number two. Klamath, California, September 25th through the 29th, 1992. The Triplicate Newspaper by Steve Selke. Darrell Owen's eight-year-old son and his twelve-year-old friend were out looking for snakes on September 12th when, at about 11.30 a.m., they heard branches rustling and smelled a strong odor. The smell was like rotted chicken. It was awful. When we looked up, we saw the big hairy man standing there, about 100 feet away. He was covered with thick, dark brown hair and was shaking a branch in his hand. We could see his face real good. My friend and I looked at him for about five seconds before we turned and ran all the way back home. As the boys turned to head for home, they saw the creature turn and walk into the brush. After questioning the boys, Darrell Owen went back out to check the area. As I headed out there, the phrase the boys used to describe what they had seen kept echoing over and over in my head. The big, hairy man. Not Bigfoot, not Sasquatch, not even Harry from the movie. Nope, they kept calling it the Big Hairy Man. Looking back on it now, I guess that should have been my first clue there was something very unusual about their story. Sure, it was wild, but somehow it just didn't have a false ring to it. And as for the kids themselves, well, there was no faking what they were feeling. They were scared to death. When I got to the spot where the boys said they had seen the big hairy man standing, my life was changed forever. As I went out to the creek bed, I figured I'd find bear tracks or nothing at all, in which case I would then know that the boys were lying about what they had claimed to see. Instead, I looked down and saw these huge footprints in the ground. I just froze. I came back on Tuesday to make a casting because when I first saw these tracks, I sort of freaked out. I could clearly hear something crunching through the thick brush going up the steep hillside. And when I heard that and looked down at the tracks heading in that direction, all I wanted to do then was get the heck out of there. Sixteen and a half inches long, eight and a half inches wide. The cast measures sixteen and a half inches long, eight and a half inches wide at the toes, and five inches at the heel. 
Owen counted 34 footprints with an average stride of 56 inches. Scott Harriet, Los Angeles, arrived in Klamath, and the men spent three days examining the scene. A few strands of brown hair were found. And then there are the screams. The screams began the night after the boys' sighting. These screeches have echoed across the canyon behind our home almost every night since, and there is more than one of them because you can hear a call and then an answer from another hilltop. The screams usually occur between 9 o'clock and 10 p.m. John Green, speaking to reporter Selkie from his home in Canada, said, Keep in mind, Bluff Creek is only about 25 miles due east of Klamath, but it is another world in environmental habitat terms. I don't know, but perhaps the drought has motivated them to travel westward toward the cooler coastline, like other wildlife has done recently. Darrell Owen reported sighting the creature, which looked directly at him from behind some bushes. It had deep-set eyes and large, close-together nostrils, and its face was dark burnt orange in color. The hair was long enough to flow as it turned its head. Scott Harriet returned to Klamath last week, October 12th, and hiked the area with Darrell. Both were armed with camcorders. Scott likens the heavy underbrush to jungles in Vietnam and says the visibility, even at midday, is poor. Nevertheless, the men found themselves looking at something with red glowing eyes. The eyes glowed red twice, like the voltage was turned up and then down. The screams have continued nightly, and after the triplicate reported Steve Selkie became involved in the Sasquatch research, a friend of his said he was near Davis Lake in Oregon when he heard the screams for 20 minutes. This ends story number two. Story number three, Little River State Beach, Humboldt County, Northern California. Two summers ago, the wife and I were camped along the Little River State Beach just north of McKinneyville, California. I've been retired for five years now. My age is 70. We had been there with family and some friends and had just finished surf fishing along about dusk, I believe it was. Four of us were sitting around the picnic table, relaxing, talking. Sarah brought to my attention a man strolling at a pretty good clip from the direction of the highway towards the ocean. I nudged my brother-in-law and said, Hey, Everett, look at that blankety-blank guy, naked as a blankety-blank jaybird. We all turned to look. This guy was huge, covered with hair, or in a costume, don't know which, and really moving out about thirty feet away from us. We all agreed he must have been about seven feet tall or better. Must have weighed better than six hundred pounds, because me and Everett's combined weight is five hundred plus, and this guy was much bigger than two of us put together. The wife noted that he was a candidate for an ugly contest, looking much like a blankety-blank ape, if you know what I mean. He was a hell-bent on getting somewhere fast, and the only place in front of him was the Blue Pacific. Sure enough, we watched him charge out into the ocean and disappear into the darkening waters. We took a high-beam flashlight and went to take a look. The tracks in the sand 
must have been two of my feet long and some wider, so as we know we weren't seeing things. If that don't beat all, the blankety-blank experiences I had in my life, I don't know what to do. My son-in-law found your website on his computer. We have read the ancient mysteries narration and think we've seen a Bigfoot by chance. We was too stupid to be afraid at the time, but after reading your webpage, don't think we'll ever be doing any fishing in California no more. We think the blankety-blank bastard may have drowned itself. F. L. Monroe, Jackson, Mississippi. That's the end of the Little River State Beach. Story number four. Lucerne Valley, San Bernardino County. This email was originally called 1988 Cement Monster, thanks to Doug and also to Peter Gutia. I really liked your page on the Desert Bigfoot. I used to be stationed at 29 Palms from 86 to 89. I spent a lot of time in the Joshua Tree Monument, but never saw anything of real interest, if you know what I mean. Where I did see something was with my marine buddy Mike, in the spring, March of 1988, after leaving Big Bear Lake. We'd been snow skiing all day at Big Bear. Now, as you probably know, the quickest way to get back to 29 Palms is to take the shortcut route through the desert. I believe it goes through, or very near, Apple Valley. It eventually comes in the back way to Yucca Valley after passing through Landers. Yes, I know you know the right highway. Okay, here goes one of the coolest things that I ever saw during the 1980s. Mike and I had just left Big Bear. It was about 9 o'clock p.m. We were completely down from the mountain and just entering the desert, still kind of going downhill. On the right-hand side of the road, there is a cement factory, sort of all by itself. There isn't any civilization around for about 10 miles or so, which isn't uncommon for the Mojave Desert. Mike was driving. I believe I saw it first. From the left side of the road, something very large seemed to stand up on two legs and run across the road. The bottom half looked human, covered with hair. The top half wasn't very visible, but appeared monsterish, scary, in other words. The headlights only got the bottom half, and the damn thing ran out about 150 feet in front of us. It made it across the road in three strides. I distinctively remember seeing the arms pumping back and forth, just like any of us would do if sprinting across the road in front of a car. It appeared to be eight feet tall. Now for the interesting part. I didn't say anything. I just kind of glanced over at Mike. He just kind of glanced back at me. Then we both looked right at each other. What the hell was that, I said. That was the cement monster. After him! Mike slammed on the brakes and turned around. I started digging through the glove box looking for his wife's pistol. I said, go down that dirt road, still looking for the pistol. About 300 feet down the dirt road was an old cement factory, but no sign of the thing that ran out in front of us. So we drove around a little bit, but didn't see it. We just accepted that we had simply seen some sort of a prehistoric man, and that was that. And it was no big deal, and maybe someday we might be privileged enough to see another. That's the end of reading number four. Story number five. The Night Stalker of Edwards Air Force Base. 
From the files of the late Bobby Ann Slate, Bigfoot Investigator. It was a routine night at the Edwards Air Force Base, Air Security Police Desk, until the frantic call came in from the patrol on duty at the restricted site known as Project Logic. The man's voice was urgent and high-pitched with fear. Send a patrol, quick! There's this huge form coming toward me. Hurry! His voice trailed off, and the sounds of gunshots could be heard through the receiver. Then there was nothing but an ominous silence. When the patrol arrived, the guard was found in a dazed, incoherent state after having fired the full magazine in his gun. The Office of Special Investigation, OSI, was called in. According to one military source, the patrol vehicle was found overturned, the patrolman's rifle snapped in two, and huge five-toed, bare, human-like footprints crisscrossed the site. The patrolman had not been injured, but was terrified. While no official report of this incident can be found in the archives of the base's historical department, the rumor circulated throughout the Air Force Police that the man at Project Logic was deeply affected by his encounter that night. They said he was placed in a military hospital and eventually sent to an overseas base. In the spring of 1974, Edwards Air Force Base security policeman, Sergeant Michael House, was on night patrol on the outskirts of the powerful communication site known as Mars Station, which maintains radio contact with other military installations around the globe. A nearby microwave tower, looming like a lonely sentinel in the darkness, stood surrounded by a wooden fence posted with signs advising that explosive devices, electrically operated or magnetically charged, would detonate within a certain radius. Sergeant House was patrolling in the area of the abandoned sled track, once used for testing G-forces, when he saw it. I'd gotten a new spotlight and was trying it out, the sergeant said. Heading back to the main base, I noticed maybe 200 to 300 yards to my left, these large blue eyes. I do a lot of night hunting, and it was strange. They were larger than anything I'd ever seen before. Their diameter had to be about four inches apart and seven feet off the ground. I stopped the truck and sat there watching them. It was too dark to see any body shape to the thing, but... The blue glows proceeded towards my truck at right angles for about 100 yards and then stopped. The hair bristled on the back of the patrolman's neck as the larger-than-human eyes began circling and again moving closer to his vehicle. A rank smell like something rotten permeated the air. The thing moved closer again, now coming to within 50 yards of the truck, but still its shape could not be discerned through the brush in the desert. Just at that moment, the truck radio advised Sergeant House that he should proceed directly back to the main base, and he quickly left the area. He returned three hours later, but there was no trace of the blue eyes. Rain washed out the possibility of locating any tracks the following day. The movement of the eyes was extremely fast, Sergeant House recalled. Another thing that bothered me was that they didn't bob up and down. It was like two lights on a wire moving from one point to another. He was ribbed a good deal while making out his official report on the incident, 
which was to set the standard of non-reporting from uh, other patrols that encountered strange things in subsequent months. The commanding officer wanted to believe that his men were simply overly imaginative. After all, the desert could produce some eerie effects at night, and then, too, reports of fantastic creatures in and around restricted areas didn't look good in the official log. You're only hearing the wind, he told the men staffing the Mars station on the midnight shift, who said that they'd been hearing some unusual sounds, as well as seeing the dark figure form of something walk past a building, a figure which would have to be almost eight feet tall to be seen through the high windows, something which stepped on and pulverized a glass soda pop bottle in his path. In several instances, calls to the air police about creatures moving in the desert did turn out to be wild burrows moving silently through the sage at night, and that while their eyes are blue, there is almost no reflection due to limited pigmentation. If there were official investigations by the OSI, the men on patrol seldom heard the outcome unless there was some natural explanation. Thus, they wondered about the rumor circulating that the three men on duty at a complex near the bombing range had called in for help. As the story went, when the patrol arrived, they found the security guards unconscious. The door leading into the building was ripped off its hinges, and the sophisticated electronic equipment within had been demolished. Just a tale? It was told to an air policeman by a member of the patrol investigating that call for help. The rocket propulsion lab lies on the eastern edge of Edwards Air Force Base and utilizes a vast area of the facility. It contains installations ranging from gigantic multi-million pound thrust rocket stands to smaller, highly specialized test equipment which can capture and instantaneously analyze the exhaust gas produced by a rocket engine. It is here that rockets and similar hardware are tested for the study of propulsion equipment under conditions of long-term exposure to the environment. It is also here that weapon systems are developed and tested. Certain areas are off-limits to civilians and signs warned to keep out of the potentially toxic areas. Air Police Sergeant Barton had an open mind about creatures. His relatives in Missouri had seen and shot at the mammoth Bigfoot-like monster known as Momo, and though he trusted their accounts of the incident, he also realized the doubt and ridicule they were subjected to when they talked about it. As a result, no formal report was made to the air security police concerning what happened in the winter of 1974, while Barton was on patrol in the vicinity of the Rocket Propulsion Laboratory, and the strange blue lights he saw in the nearby mountains. Assuming the lights to be from a car, Barton drove toward them in order to intercept any unauthorized trespassers. The lights vanished when he arrived at the site where he had last seen them, but now he found his vehicle mired in the soft desert sand. Walking approximately two miles back to base, the sergeant intercepted a patrol and they radioed for a tow truck. When the truck arrived and everyone returned to the sergeant's vehicle, they found three towed tracks measuring 14 inches long with what appeared to be a clawed digit at the heel. 
The wind was blowing soft sand, and the footprints were filling in rapidly, making any precise identification difficult. But whatever it was had completely circled the truck, as if inspecting it, and then walked off on two legs into the desert. Three weeks later, and also on patrol, Air Patrol Sergeant Jones was parked in the region of the rocket site. It was close to midnight. The moon was up when suddenly Jones noticed a shape moving across the skyline of a nearby hill. While he couldn't estimate its height, the trunk area or girth was described as immense. The sergeant quickly grabbed his radio microphone and called HQ. Tell the replacement to hurry up. I might need some help, he urged. As Jones looked back again to the hill, two large luminescent green-blue orbs, like eyes, were moving toward him. They didn't really seem to me like they were bouncing the way a person's would when walking, he said. They kind of floated or were moving on an easy glide. Car lights appeared down the road, and the patrolman lost no time in getting out of his truck and walking to meet the vehicle. At that moment he was extremely grateful that the men had responded so quickly to his call for help, but that wasn't actually so. The other vehicle had been ordered into the area in response to a report about strange lights being observed in the hills. Yet no unauthorized cars had been located, and now the glowing eyes had disappeared. All that remained in the vicinity were unusual marks on the ground. The two rounded depressions measured six inches and two inches in diameter, respectively. They were all over the place, Jones said. There were so many of them that I couldn't follow any trail. Barton, who had found tracks around his truck a few weeks earlier, said they were similar to what he had seen. The other man, along on patrol, didn't get out of the car. He said he didn't want anything to do with it. Can anybody blame him? That's the end of story number five. Story number six. A Scary Experience in Northern California, 2004. I would like to share an experience we had last month in Northern California. My brother Zachary and I went to do a little gold panning in the rivers and creeks that encircle the Marble Mountain Wilderness. We know that there has been extensive dredging activity there along the Salmon and Klamath Rivers, and some of the surrounding tributaries. We are not looking to get rich. Just the sight of a little color in our pans is a great feeling. I'm kind of guessing at the exact area, but we had started our run from the south in the hamlet of Etna. We proceeded to encircle the Marble Mountain area, planning on going through Happy Camp and returning north to Oregon after hitting Highway 5 near Eureka, California. We were wading in the river just outside Forks of Salmon, looking for pay dirt, when we heard a kind of scream coming from across the river. It was probably 80 yards wide. We thought it might be a bird or mountain lion, but felt safe on our side of the river. We were panning anyway, and heard a splash, and looked up to see a big stick that had hit the water, and was floating downstream. It could not have fallen off a tree, as none overhung the water at the point of entry. We sat up and observed the other bank. A rock also came flying into the water, and while it was not nearly close enough to threaten our safety, it hit the water about halfway, 
and from the splash, it was sizable. I'm guessing ten inches around. I don't know a human that could throw a rock that big that far. We decided we were not wanted there, even though it was public access. As we picked up our pans and gear to head back to the truck, we again heard more of the screams. This was about 10 a.m., and we stopped to eat a bit later, somewhere after Sums Bar and before Clear Creek. We pulled into a camp area for lunch and met a couple of Native American gentlemen who were outfitted for fishing. We asked if they had ever fished where we had been panning, and they had. We related our experience, and they said, and quite matter-of-factly, that most likely it was Bigfoot who resented our presence. We had only seen some foliage moving, but even looking through binoculars could not see any hair or body that would identify our subject as an animal. Interesting to us, not so much that we were run off by something, but that our Bigfoot suspicions were confirmed by locals, to whom such an experience was seemingly so commonplace. We plan to return later in the year, and will be armed with cameras and tape recorders. It was unnerving, but exciting at the same time. I later learned that these local natives are not generally given to sharing lots of lore or information, but I guess we were visibly agitated by our morning. We will try to warm up to some of the locals, and see if there might be any other areas where such events occur. Alfred Red Cody Wednesday, July 7th, 2004, 9.53 a.m. This ends the reading of the six stories. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to this episode of Creek Devil. If you or anyone you know has had an encounter with these creatures, please contact us at williamjevning at yahoo.com. That's William, J-E-V-N-I-N-G, at yahoo.com. All communication is confidential. Join us for another program next week. And until then, keep your eyes open out there.